welcome to a very special Metacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes to the Song of Ice and Fire one chapter week, but oh no, not here. I'm your host, Jeff, there is Brennan Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our fourth annual and 42nd Patreon episode titled The Broken Man, in which Emmett and I will break down Theon Greyjoy in A Dance with Dragons as a preview of what will be in store for all of you, to include us, if we reach our Patreon stretch goals. I've been looking forward to this one for a while. Theon and Dance is some of my favorite stuff in the series, even better than Theon's class chapters, which were already pretty great. You know, we uh, sometimes get flack for our noble, correct preference for A Dance with Dragons, but <laughs> Theon's chapters are one of the main reasons why I love that book so dearly. So if you subscribe to our Patreon, you'll receive a monthly bonus episode like this covering theories, in-depth character analysis, pop culture, movies, etc., etc. We also have our uh, chapter-by-chapter podcast covering George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel Fever Dream. So if you like what you hear, consider becoming a patron for just $5 a month to receive bonus episodes. Higher-level patrons receive additional perks and content, like the ability to submit questions to us. We answer every week on the regular podcast. A rad t-shirt of your choice and color designed by our friend Mallory, a.k.a. Sanrixian. Access to the Not A Slack. Shoutouts at the start or end of every episode. And weekly mini-sodes that we record before each regular episode. Yeah, Patreon is a great place for folks to be if you like what you hear and, and would like to support us. And as we said in A Storm of Swords, Samuel 1, Part 2, we've kind of revamped our Patreon stretch goals a bit. So if we get up to 950 total patrons, we'll kick off our full analysis of Theon's The Wind's Winner Sample Chapter with Part 1. At 975 patrons, so just 25 patrons more than that, it'll be Part 2. At 1,000 patrons, we'll do part three. And at 1,025 patrons, which would be amazing, we'll flawlessly predict the rest of Theon Greyjoy's story in The Winds of Winter and beyond in our concluding part of our analysis of the Theon The Winds of Winter chapter. And I just think we will be flawless when we do that, when we get up to that part four portion, just like we were when we did The Forsaken, which, of course, if you sign up as a patron, you can listen to all the parts of The Forsaken while you wait for us to achieve our long-term goals. So help us achieve our goals and check us out at patreon.com forward slash notacast as. O-I-A-F. Yes, definitely check out those Forsaken episodes if you haven't yet. I think that's a good enough reason to sign up for the Patreon right there. That's some of our best work. And I can't wait to hit those goals and do the Theon Wins a Winter chapter with you, sir. I know that's a favorite of yours, and I love it as well. And yes, we can talk about what's next for everyone's favorite slash least favorite Greyjoy. (laughs) Favorite? Favorite? I mean... Well, you got Asha there. So, yeah, well, close. So he's up there. He's a great chat character. You know, who doesn't love Victorian and Aaron Greyjoy, too? And you're on great. They're all amazing <laughs> characters, not people. Exactly. But characters. Exactly. Wonderful characters. So, Emmett, I had a question for you. As folks might know who are our regular patrons, we start each of these patron episodes off with kind of an icebreaker question. So, Emmett, my icebreaker to you this week is a question. Even among immorals who dislike A Dance with Dragons, the Greyjoy's story in Dance is seen as, you know, pretty fucking good for good reason. It is good. Why do you think Theon's A Dance with Dragons arc is almost universally beloved by fans of all the pro and anti A Dance with Dragons stuff, while most of the rest of the other A Dance with Dragons point of view characters receive such polarizing reactions of either love or hate or maybe even some indifference from fans? Why do you think that's the case? I think it might be because there's a slow burn element to some other storylines in A Dance with Dragons. I love the John chapters. I love the Daenerys chapters. But they're not 
uh, edge of your seat thrill rides. You know, they're they're about sitting with the characters while they get kind of unhappy with their roles. They go through the minutiae of their tasks. The, the tension builds up and it eventually explodes at the end of the book. And I think a very satisfying uh, manner. But for some people, it's just kind of a slog, especially towards the middle of the book. And the middle of the book is really where Theon shines. You get some really great Mm. chapters in Winterfell, really well written, a lot of tension in the air. And there's just a sense of urgency because of what's happened to Theon. And you want to figure out what's going to happen next and where George could possibly be going with such such an intense, despairing character arc. I think it reminds people of the Jamie chapters in Storm that are really popular, especially among big fans of this story. (laughs) That same sense of of a character we loved to hate being put through the ringer and our relationship to them challenged as we see what's going to happen to them i think people also really like the backdrop to these chapters the the northern politics and the former stark vassals trying to figure out what direction they're going to take things in i think people have more of a direct connection to that whereas the politics in slavers bay although i think they're really interesting and well written for most people that's it's just kind of that's just kind of a backdrop for danny's character and isn't super interesting in and of itself and I think dance is also um, messy, structurally speaking, hmm. I think just because of the writing process. So you have things like Bran only gets a couple of chapters. Davos gets some really amazing chapters in White Harbor, but he kind of drops out of the book before it's even halfway done, just because George didn't, just didn't have the whole Rickon and Skygo stuff written yet. Whereas Theon's, Theon's chapters are pretty well spaced out throughout the book, and he has what feels like a complete storyline, one that... Uh, we're going to go over what happens in his chapters in this episode, but really you get that satisfying ending. One of those moments I know you love so well when he reunites with Asha in her last chapter in Dance, and he says, Sister, see, this time I knew you. And that feels, ah, mm. that feels perfectly complete. Whereas, like, with Tyrion, I think his chapters are really, really well done and advance his character in a lot of interesting ways in Dance, but his storyline in Dance does just kind of end when he gets to <laughs> Slaver's Bay, and there isn't, like, that, that, ah, satisfying character, not conclusion. And Theon has that. So I think if, if the, the flaws of Dance or the pace of Dance Dance bothers you. Theon, I think, does feel like uh, an exception to the rule. What do you think? I think you're right. It's almost like a palate cleanser if you're not mm-hmm. really like into the Danny stuff in Marine or John counting turnips at the wall, right? Or or all of that stuff. I, I think you you hit on something which I think is is crucial, which is I think is that Theon's story goes through a complete arc. So Theon goes from starts at one place and ends at a completely different place, and he has gone through. I was about to say an amazing journey, but he's gone through quite the journey, let's say, in, in in A Dance with Dragons. And in doing that journey, it touches on all of the really cathartic moments that I think make A Song of Ice and Fire so great. You brought up the Jamie example, which I think is so crucial in understanding why Theon is beloved in dance. Because Jamie and Theon were not well-loved characters prior to... Well, prior for Jamie for a Storm of Swords, Theon in A Dance with Dragons. But they do do things that uh, that make them a little bit more lovable, not lovable, make them a little bit more sympathetic and enjoyable mm-hmm. to read in their point of view arcs. You have Theon jumping at the end of his story. And then, of course, you have Jamie jumping into the bear pit in Harrenhal and rescuing yes. Brienne. Mm-hmm. So I think that that those heroic moments really help us to kind of see these characters in different light, in a different light. But you have emotional payoffs, you have character payoffs, and you have plot payoffs too. I think one thing that makes the on story really rich in dance and why people love it is because it is it does remind them a lot of the storm of swords pacing and the politics of uh, of, of a storm of swords and. There's subterfuge, there's espionage, there's spying, there's stuff we'll get to as we t- we'll talk about uh, for Theon in a, in a Dance with Dragons. So it, it feels like a kind of a, a different story. Whereas, you know, I again, like you, I love Jon Snow in A Dance with Dragons. He's probably my favorite single arc, single character arc in all of the books. 
but it is 13 chapters and it does kind of feel when you get to those middle chapters and John's kind of doing the same thing he was doing at the start of the start of the book. Um, you do kind of feel that the story is lagging. And I know that Martin's intent, or at least I, I suspect Martin's intent in writing that was to show kind of how life actually is for John at the wall. As Lord Commander, it is not the exciting draw your sword and fight back the wildlings, prepare for the others or anything like that. Well, it actually is the day-to-day minutia of being in leadership and command, which if you've not been in leadership and command before, can sometimes just be real fucking boring. And man, some of that stuff in the middle parts of, of John's story are really boring, but I still love it all the same. And Daenerys, I think, you know, you, there's a lot of factors that go into why people didn't like Danny's story, um, whether it's it's her gender, whether it's the setting of Marine itself, how it's not Westeros, and also how Martin himself seems to have... <laughs> you could read this really strongly in dance, but uh, Marine, it was clear. It's clear that Martin does not like the setting, and he preferred for Danny to be someplace else besides Marine. And the fact that he has to keep her in Marine to, satis- to tell it satisfying stories seemingly frustrated him, and led to um, you know kind of that frustration being read out in fans. And again, you bring up the smaller arcs as well, which do have have impacts there. But I I, I do think it's a, that Theon's story hits all of the marks, which make A Song of Ice and Fire just a really a rich story. And, you know, it's it's really interesting to think that it's only, what, eight, seven chapters for, for Theon in dance. It's it's relatively short, all things considered, but Martin packs quite a punch in Theon's chapters in A Dance with Dragons. And, you know, really, while it sets up his, while it completes his arc, it also does a fantastic job of setting up his story for The Winds of Winter. Yeah, and well said. And I, I love that those John and Danny chapters, too. I think they convey their emotions, and it's a wonderfully tricky move where they're, they're they they want to take action but when they eventually they do take action at the end of the book it's kind of laced with dread and concern about what's going to happen and i think that's that's a a wonderful kind of commentary on the genre that it drives us towards solving the problem riding in with knights on horseback but uh it reminds me of a, a line from uh, one of the recent episodes of succession when uh, kendall is talking to his father logan and says i thought i thought it was going to just you know ride in change things be a knight on horseback and his father says Life isn't about knights on horseback. It's a number on a piece of paper. It's a fight for a knife in the mud. And that's what I love about John and Danny's storylines in A Dance with Dragons. Is it shows like this is, this is what really being in charge and trying to make things better looks like. It's just a grind. It's exhausting. It's cynical. And, and by the end, what you're going to long to do is just pick up a sword and fight your enemies. And that's such a relatable <laughs> instinct, but it's actually not what you're supposed to be doing. And I, right. think, that, I think that's kind of brilliant. But I understand it's not the same as John seeing you know, giants riding mammoths. It's not the same as Danny with Dracarys and Astapor. It doesn't make you go, woohoo, and jump out of your seat and be thrilled. <laughs> it's it's more just like you, you're, you're sinking in. And that's just, it's just a different kind of literary pleasure. And I think if you're looking more for the heart in your throat stuff that people so often associate with George R. R. Martin, that's what's really great about these Theon chapters. Yeah, but there still is a lot of like really strong characteristic stuff in Theon's story that we'll get to a little bit later in this analysis of Theon Greyjoy in A Dance with Dragons. And to kind of set the stage for talking about Theon in dance, I thought it would be interesting to maybe about like six or seven of you who are listening to this to talk about, you know, what how Theon came to be in A Dance with Dragons, how his chapters came to be, whether Theon was going to be a point of view or whether that was the plan all along from George R. R. Martin to bring Theon back as a point of view character. And, you know, we, we covered Theon extensively in A Clash of Kings, and those chapters are actually really good. So go back and listen to them. I find them some of the some of the best stuff, I think, that is uh, that we've done. In addition to, of course, our Forsaken episodes and all the other episodes we've done uh, for all for all time. 
time, but I really enjoyed the, the the Theon stuff from from Clash. So again, Clash introduced Theon as our new point of view character in the story, in which the self-styled Prince of Winterfell stumble fucked his way into taking the castle of Winterfell itself. But then again, of course, at the end of the his arc, the Northmen re- threatened to retake the castle, but Theon refuses to retreat back to Pike with Asha. And the end of the arc has Prince Faelson losing this castle, losing the castle of Winterfell to the Boltons, with his final memory being his horse Smiler on fire. So that is the final moment in of for Theon in A Clash of Kings. And it really begs the question, was George's plan always to return to Theon Greyjoy in the story? And the answer is ambiguous. Before Storm was published, George gave an online interview in which he was asked, I had heard the next book will not have a point of view by Theon. Is this true? And this does this mean that he is dead? And George Armand replied, it is true that his point of view will not be President Storm. This does not mean he's dead, but it doesn't mean he's alive either. So George says this in 2000, just before A Storm of Swords is published in the United States. And here he's saying that he's he's saying he's not even sure if Theon is alive or dead at this point. Now, I do think that George knew that he was alive. But the fact that he was kind of like being a little bit ambiguous about whether Theon was alive or dead means that maybe there is a lot of ambiguity about whether Theon would return as a point of view character. And I do think that reading between the lines, George probably didn't want to spoil that Theon does come up in A Storm of Swords a few times. Again, this interview came up before Storm was published. And most notably that uh, most notably that time being the gift that Roose Bolton presents to Lady Catelyn just before the Red Wedding. The skin from the little finger of Theon Greyjoy's left hand. My son is cruel, I confess it, and yet what is a little skin against the lives of two young princes? You are their mother, my lady. May I offer you this small token of revenge? Roose then confirms that Theon is alive, and he requests to hold Theon captive for the moment in order to later offer to execute him to either Victarion or Euron, the idea being that Roose will offer to execute Theon in exchange for concessions from whichever Greyjoy brother sits the sea stone chair. And in Storm, Rob reluctantly agrees to this, and then the matter is dropped. We don't really hear about Theon thereafter. So then the question becomes whether George R. Martin always intended for Theon to return as a point of view character. And the answer to that question is pretty murky. When George was writing Feast, it's not clear that he wrote any Theon Greyjoy chapters prior to 2005 when he split a Feast for Crows and a Dance with Dragons. In fact, from my research, I'm fairly confident he hadn't written anything for Theon prior to the split. However, I do think George made the decision while writing A Feast for Crows to reintroduce Theon Greyjoy as a point of view character in a later volume, because in 2004, George stated, Theon won't be in A Feast for Crows, but that's not to say he won't turn up again in some future volume. He's not dead, though at times he wishes he were. Meanwhile, after when he announced the split between Feast and Dance, George said, We will see a lot of Roos and Ramsay in A Dance with Dragons. To me, that serves as the point when George R. R. Martin confirmed that the end would return as a point of view character, as there were no other point of views who could provide any viewpoint to Roos or Ramsay Bolton. Again, though, I do think George decided prior to this that Theon would return as a point of view, but in A Dance with Dragons. The next time we hear, we hear about Theon, it was in February 2008 when George R.R. R. R. Martin announced that he would release a chapter from the perspective of Reek in the Spectra Pulse magazine. And this chapter turned out to be Reek's first chapter from A Dance with Dragons, which is, of course, our first Theon point of view chapter in Dance. One point of interest about this chapter is that I, I haven't found a copy of it. I kind of searched over the internet for it. But I did find some fans who noted who had the who had that version in Spectre Pulse magazine from 2008 and had the published version of A Dance with Dragons 2011. And they noted that Theon and Kyra's and Kyra's escape from the Dreadford or the memory that Theon has of this was different in the sample chapter than the published version. And I'd really love to know more about this because I'm a fucking nerd. Actually, I'm not a nerd because I work out. So if you have a copy of this Reek chapter published in Spectre Pulse, please hit us up at notacast at gmail.com. 
After that, we have a few more years of radio silence about Theon Greyjoy. However, in summer 2010, George started to really open up about his progress in writing A Dance with Dragons. And during that time, George used code names to refer to point of view characters so as not to spoil which point of view, which characters were point of views, or in the case of Theon returning his point of views. And one of those names he used was a character by the code name of Fred. Here's what George said about Fred back then. Finally, you might mention that I finished a chapter of Dance today. I had one last chapter about this particular character. I will call him Fred to finish, and then I am done with him for the book. Of course, in the writing, it turned into three chapters. So I finished a Fred chapter a week ago and a Fred chapter an hour ago, and yet I still have one Fred chapter to finish. From the context clues, we know that this character was not involved in the Marinese Knot. He was a male character. We can also be relatively certain that this was not Jamie Lannister as he only had one chapter in Dance. This also wasn't Bran Stark as he wrote at least two of his chapters by 2008. The only other possibility is Davos Seaworth, but George wrote, again, two of these chapters during the timeline of A Feast for Crows. Both Davos 1 and Davos 2 were written prior to 2004, even. Years ago, Adam Feldman pointed out to me that by deduction, the only person this codename could refer to is Theon Greyjoy, and I agree. So what I think occurred is that George wrote A Ghost from Winterfell and The Turn Cloak in summer 2010, but he still needed to write Theon by that point. Later in December 2010 and then February 2011, George referenced writing from the perspective of Krakens. Given that George refers to one of the Krakens as her, and that it's also snowing on the Krakens, I do think the Krakens reference here refers to both Asha and Theon Greyjoy. What that means is that the final Theon dance chapter that George said he had to finish back in summer 2010 was still outstanding some six months later. Again, this is George R. R. Martin we're talking about. Of course, these chapters are going to take like years to write. As it turned out, the chapter Theon from A Dance with Dragons was one of the final chapters that George completed for the book, as it is listed on the missing chapters page of the A Dance with Dragons manuscript housed at the Texas A&M's Cushing Library. So my takeaway about all of this meta-analysis that you're probably, your eyes have glazed over, you've probably fallen asleep and crashed to the side of the road at this point, is that George Amarn worked really hard to get the final Theon A Dance with Dragons chapter correct and held onto it for as long as possible, tickering with it until close to the last possible moment when probably Random House is like, George, George, give us that fucking Theon chapter. Come up, George. George, the Theon chapter belongs to us now. So that's some of the meta background of how Theon's dance story came to be. And before we turn to the meat of Theon's story and the themes in Dance, I figured I'd add a few more notes of things I found about George's writing of Theon and Dance with Dragons. So in 2012, in a Ask Me Anything on the A Song of Ice and Fire subreddit, a Redditor asked George, did writing about Reek disturb you as much as it did for us to read about him? George replied, those chapters were certainly challenging to write, but I would not say they disturbed me. The challenge was to find ways to disturb my readers while keeping the character psychologically true. Then in 2013, George provided audio commentary for season three's The Bear and the Maiden Fair episode in which he said, I have absolutely nothing to do with these. And he's referring to the scenes with Ramsay and Theon in, in, uh, in season three. Uh, I had absolutely nothing to do with these Theon scenes. Oh, I saw this for the first time when I, when I told him. But oh, you can't. You can't. This episode was broadcast in the book. Yes, Theon is tortured for years, but he essentially he disappears at the end of book two and doesn't reappear to the beginning of book five, by which time he's transformed into Reek. So there's some mention in flashback and dialogue of the fact that he's been tortured for several years and essentially broken down his whole personality, broken down, and he's lost various bits of his body, some of his teeth, some of his fingers and toes. Other parts, well, I leave that a little more to the imagination than what we're about to see here. So now this scene was 100% David and Dan. 
An interesting takeaway from that is that George didn't want to portray the scenes of intense torture that Theon experienced in the moment. Rather, he wanted to, that to come out in flashback and memory in Theon's A Dance of Dragons chapters. As to why that is, eh, we might get to that later on in this analysis. And while we'll get to more George quotes about Theon in A Dance of Dragons, the final piece comes from a, an appearance in 2017 at St. Petersburg, Russia, where George talked about Theon in the context of the Boltons. Oh, how many people here are showing interest in the Boltons? Exclamation point. Ramsay appeared because I needed another bad guy. I killed several previous ones. In addition, it allowed to develop a story to in addition, it allowed to develop the story of Theon. To bite Theon the ass, deprive him of a few pieces of flesh, and make Ramsay a servant, putting the dark impulses on the path of service. This was demanded by the storyline. My interpretation of this quote, and it is, if you can tell, like the the <laughs> the cadence is a little off there, it is translated from George's response in English to Russian and then back to English. So yeah, is that the Boltons serve as villains to the story of Dance with Dragons, but the Boltons also work to give Theon the comeuppance that he had coming, so to speak. More interestingly, the Boltons work as part of the character development for Theon and as part of the plot, showing Theon as a servant of Ramses and the darkness inherent in serving a monster like Ramsay. So that's all the meta background of Theon Greyjoy in A Dance with Dragons. I'll have a lot more to say about the meta background of Theon's The Winds of Winter sample chapter and his larger storyline in Winds, but you'll need to become a patron and help us achieve our goals for more of that. That's such great stuff, man. You do a better job than anyone else at laying out the meta background in the writing process as George goes through the series. And that's especially interesting in this case because of what a, a long gap we get between Theon POV chapters, how radical the radical changes made to him and the, the way George writes him in the interim. And I love just getting those bits and pieces of how he thought that through and the, and the different ways it could have gone because this is, this is a really ambitious storytelling gambit and one where I think George could have fallen flat on his face. He might have failed to engage his audience about Theon. It might have been too long or too confusing. But I think, yeah, I think he knocked it out of the park and you can see just in those bits and pieces he's talked about it what his overall kind of emotional thematic goals were and I think he, I think he hit them perfectly. But before we talk a little bit more about the, the meaning of Theon's story in A Dance with Dragons, let's lay out exactly what happens. And I'm going to try to fill your big synopsis shoes here and uh, deliver an overall synopsis of Theon's storyline in A Dance with Dragons. I'm not going to go into the wonderful detail you often do because I'm trying to sum up seven chapters <laughs> at once here. But uh, let's go ahead with a synopsis for Theon Greyjoy's storyline in A Dance with Dragons. So excited. Do it. Do it. You got this, man. You can do hell it. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. So, some guy named Reek is having a delicious meal of rat tartar down in the Dreadfort Dungeons when two first ballot Hall of Fame brats, both named Walder, interrupt and drag him before their benevolent patron, who used to call himself Reek, but is now once again Ramsay. There was also another guy named Reek, but he's dead. Confused? To keep it simple, let's call our current Reek by another name, eh, maybe Theon. Theon has changed quite a bit since last we met him, having lost several fingers, several toes, one penis, and almost all of his sanity. But hey, he got off easy compared to poor Kyra. They had run for it together, but it was all a trap set by Ramsay with his pale eyes and his sinuous smile. Ramsay tells Theon that they are riding to war to bring back his virgin bride. I love this plan. I'm excited to be a part of it. Ramsay takes his prisoner, his dogs, and his best friends that his dad bought for him to Moat Kaelin. You see, that dad I just mentioned, Roose Bolton, is trying to get back to the north, alongside his in-laws, the Freys. Unfortunately for them, the Ironborn still hold Moat Kaelin, and Ramsay needs his reek to play Theon once more in order to convince the Ironborn to stand down. Turns out the Ironborn there are in sorry-ass shape, abandoned by Victarion, cut to pieces by the Cranog men, and driven bonkers by the environment. Theon convinces them to surrender with the promise that they can go home. 
and they all live happily ever after. Oh wait, I'm holding the book upside down. Silly me, let me see what actually happens. Oh, oh no. After Ramsay tortures all the Ironborn to death, Roos arrives with his army, his wife, and Ramsay's own wife-to-be, a young woman that everyone keeps calling Arya Stark, but Theon knows that's not so. It's actually Jane Poole. You remember her, she was in the Game of Thrones pilot for like a split second. <laughs> Anywho, the Red Wedding Planning Committee then hooks up with a bunch of Northmen at the town of Barrowton. Lady Barbary Dustin, nay Riswell, runs this town, having parlayed widow's rights into permanent political power, basically because everyone's too scared of her to say shit about it. She's the closest thing Roos has to a friend, but she hates Ramsay's ass and won't let him in the castle. Roos isn't exactly pleased with Ramsay either, telling his bastard in no uncertain terms that he is a world historical fuck-up who has already poisoned his own reputation among the people whose support he would need to succeed his father as the Lannister's pet warden of the North. Roos takes Theon for a private chat, but not before Ramsay promises to remove another of Theon's fingers. Gee, I can't imagine why this guy is so unpopular in the North. <laughs> Roos casually chats to Theon about how he raped Ramsay's mother, how Ramsay killed his true-born older brother Domeric, which is why Barbary hates him, and how he, Roos, just loves getting it on with his Frey wife. Oh, by the way, speaking of Freys, several seem to have vanished on the way from White Harbor. Eh, insignificant detail, won't come up again. <laughs> Roos introduces Theon and us to Barbary Dustin, who promptly makes fun of how Theon smells. What a gracious host she is. Their original plan was to have Ramsay wed Jane, uh, Arya, of course, in Barrowton, <laughs> before the assembled northern community to bind Stark and Bolton together forevermore. But now Stannis, Stannis, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I got something in my throat. Stannis has arrived at the Wall and is trying to gain support among northern nobility. What a shock, it's not going well. The only positive response he's gotten has been from Arnulf Karstark, and it turns out he's a double agent for the Boltons. So plan B is for the coalition of traitors to occupy Winterfell, or what Ramsay left of it, host the wedding there, wait for Stannis to march on them, and then arrange for Arnulf to stab him in the back. What's Theon's role in all this? Well, as someone who spent his formative years in Winterfell, he's in the position to verify quote-unquote Arya as legit, so he has to give her away at the wedding. Oh, what a happy occasion. The color palette I'm thinking, ash and blood red. Speaking of blood, Roos semi-restores the ruins of Winterfell by forcing local squatters into labor, after which he hangs them. Where his son got his attitude from, I can't imagine. <laughs> Theon escorts Jane, who he describes as having a face carved of ice like a corpse buried in the snow, through Winterfell, which now feels like the underworld to Theon, with all the guests as ghosts. Creepy stuff, and only gets creepier from there. Ramsay weds Jane before the heart tree, and everyone gathers in the Great Hall for the feast. Theon's invited, but everyone hates him, calling him a turncloak. Lord Wyman Manderley provides the piece de resistance, three tasty-looking meat pies. He tells his Frey and Bolton hosts to enjoy every bite, because he certainly will. He neglected to bring any singers, though. Thankfully, some mysterious dude calling himself Abel showed up, along with some women, to provide entertainment. Barbary gets a little too drunk and starts venting about politics to Theon, telling him there's trouble brewing between Manderley and the new regime, and that Roos aspires to be king in the north himself after they've dealt with Stannis. Barbary's the only one in the north powerful enough to stop him, which is why Roos is so deferential to her. Barbary's in the middle of telling Theon about the maester conspiracy theory she learned on YouTube when word comes that Stannis is marching from Deepwood Mott against them, along with the Mountain Clansmen. The lords leave, with a drunk woman Manderley asking for a song about the rat cook. Hmm, hmm. 
Theon is ordered to escort Jane to Ramsay's bedchamber, where, in a not-safe-for-work scene even by A Song of Ice and Fire standards, Ramsay orders him to use his tongue to get Jane wet for him. Did I say earlier? I spoke too soon. The winter snows start to fall. Theon pokes around Winterfell looking for an escape route, but the castle is locked up tighter than an Ohio State fan's asshole. Did I do that right, Jeff? You're much better at making fun of Ohio than I am. I think so. I think so. Perfect. Perfect. Anyway, Theon's got nowhere to go and no one to take him in. This ruined castle is the only home he has. It's a sad fate, but Jane's is even worse. She's not allowed outside Ramsay's bedchamber. Theon sends up women to feed and clean her, and they can't help but see the bruises. One of Abel's washerwomen, named Rowan, approaches Theon during dinner. She flirts with him a bit. Theon thinks he would have happily had sex with her before, but now her touch terrifies him. Eventually, she reveals her true purpose, asking him how he got into Winterfell. Abel wants to know. Maybe he'll make it into a song. But Theon fears another of Ramsay's traps. He walks through the increasingly snowy castle, taking stock of its defenses, thinking that Stannis will stand no chance of taking the castle by force. Subterfuge won't work for him as it did for Theon, because the defenders are ready this time. Theon tries to pray to the heart tree, but doesn't know what to ask for. He also sees another washerwoman making out with Ricard Riswell. What are these ladies up to? Speaking of ladies, Theon next talks to Barbary Dustin, who wants his help finding the Winterfell crypts. Nothing down there but dead Starks, Theon says, but that suits her just fine. All her favorite Starks are dead. As they descend the stairs, Barbary mentions that everyone can hear quote-unquote Arya weeping, and it's pissing the Northmen off something fierce. They walk among the statues, Theon remembering what names he can. Barbary notices that some of the swords are missing. Must be ghosts, Zoys. <laughs> Theon asks why Barbary hates the Starks, and she says it's for the same reason Theon loves them. Theon protests that he killed Bran and Rickon, but Barbary cuts through his bullshit, pointing out that he rode with Robb into battle and went home to Pike as his emissary. Why does Theon love the Starks? He wanted to be one of them, and never could. Barbary feels the same way. They stop at the statue of Brandon Stark, Ned's older brother. Barbary fondles his stone knee, her eyes suddenly alight. She tells Theon about how Brandon was fostered at Barrowton, always riding horses with his wild sister Lyanna. Brandon claimed Barbary's maidenhead. She still remembers her maiden's blood on his cock. She loved him, but Lord Rickard had Southron ambitions that demanded Brandon marry Catelyn Tully instead. Barbary married Lord Dustin, who rode off with Ned Stark during Robert's Rebellion and died for it. Ned brought his bones back, but Barbary is going to make sure that Ned's bones never come home. Barbary tells Theon to keep their conversation a secret. As the snowfall continues, the murders begin. First is a Riswell man-at-arms, found half-buried in the snow at the base of the inner wall. Rumor begins to spread that Stannis has agents inside the castle. The weather begins to feel like a curse, and one unwise free rider says that Stannis's red god might be able to melt the snow. For that, Ramsay has him whipped and tossed naked out into the snow. Later, another of the washerwomen, Holly, comes to flirt with Theon, asking him to show her the crypts. Theon assumes Abel is looking for an escape route and tells her to leave him alone. The next murder victim is Anus Frey's squire, found dead of exposure in the lich yard. Then it's a flint crossbowman, found near the stables with his skull staved in. Theon thinks this is eerily familiar, a show he's seen before, when he had Ramsay, posing as Reek, murder his own men at Winterfell to keep the secret about the Miller's boys. The lords argue about whether they should stay put or march out to meet Stannis. Hostine Frey, a large ham hawk of a man, all but <laughs> accuses Wyman Manderley of murdering his relatives, the ones who went missing. They almost come to blows, and Theon glimpses fear in Roose's eyes for the first time. 
That night, the new stable collapses, killing two men and dozens of horses. After the mess is dealt with, another corpse is found. Yellow Dick, one of Ramsey's cronies. He was buried in the snow up to his neck outside the kitchens, with his eponymous dick shoved in his mouth. The Great Hall is soon a gross, smelly mess, with all the horses inside along with the men and dogs. Ramsey's remaining cronies tell Theon that the bastard needs to cut off Theon's lips when this is all over. Gotta have things to look forward to in life, I guess. <laughs> Theon goes wandering again and encounters a mysterious hooded man who calls him a turncloak and a kinslayer, but lets him live after seeing what Ramsey has done to him. Theon climbs the inner walls, but the weather has reduced visibility to the point he can't even see the outer wall. He thinks that the outside world is gone, and he's trapped here with his ghosts. Steelshanks Walton arrives to escort Theon to Roos and his inner circle. They're investigating the murders, but Theon is quickly cleared of all suspicion. Barbary and the Riswells point out that the Freys in particular have no lack of enemies. After all, the North remembers. Airhorn, airhorn. <laughs> Theon returns to his wandering. He hears a horn and then drums outside the walls, and the men whispering that Stannis has come at last. Badass. It's not true, it's actually Crow Food Umber, but he's badass too, so it counts. <laughs> Theon knows that Stannis has teamed up with Jon Snow, who would behead him for his crimes. So no matter where Theon goes, there's always the snow waiting to punish him. He thinks that Roose needs a battle to redirect the growing tensions inside the castle. Theon himself would welcome the chance to die in battle. He arrives at the Godswood, where the snow is melting, the steam rising into a warm fog, just lovely imagery. The heart tree seems to watch him, and Theon thinks he can hear his name being murmured among the rustling of the leaves. He begs for a sword, to die as Theon, instead of Reek. Next he hears Bran's name. He thinks they, they were only Miller's boys he killed, not Stark's, and he had to have two heads, or they would have laughed at him. Suddenly, the washerwomen show up. Theon realizes that they're behind the murders, and assumes he's next. They promise him the quick death he longs for, but not before he speaks to Abel, and does as he asks. The next morning, they prepare to put Abel's escape plan into motion. The singer says they only have to make it the Stannis outside the walls. Theon says that Ramsay will hunt them, and makes them promise to kill him before letting the bastard take him alive. Speaking of Ramsay, he's arguing with his father and his stepmother, Walda Frey. She's newly pregnant, and looks terrified. They're interrupted by Hostine Frey, who enters the Great Hall with Little Walder's body in his arms. Big Walder reports that his cousin had been dicing with Manderly men, and was trying to get money he was owed. Lord Wyman says the death was a blessing, because the kid would have grown up a Frey. Airhorn again. <laughs> Hostine pulls out his sword and attacks, leading to a full-out brawl, leaving nine men dead and a dozen wounded, including Wyman himself. Afterward, Bruce declares that he has received word that Stannis is holed up in a crofter's village several days right away, as we've seen in Asha chapters. Bruce sends the Frey and Manderly men out to attack him. He orders Abel to sing to restore calm, and the washerwoman sees the chance to carry out the escape. They pose as servants, taking hot water up to Jane for a bath. Along the way, the washerwomen deny killing little Walder. One of the washerwomen, Squirrel, stays behind to pose as Jane. The others split up, a couple going with Theon and Jane, while the rest wait for Abel. Holly kills a guard, which makes Jane scream loud enough to alert the rest. Frenya stays behind to fight them off, while Holly, Theon, and Jane run for it, but that turns out to be a mistake, because Frenya has the rope. Holly is killed by an arrow. At the thought of being taken alive to Ramsay, Theon grabs Jane and jumps from the outer wall into the snow-white world waiting below. And that is the story of Theon Greyjoy in A Dance with Dragons. Again, a lot, lot, lot to sum up in, in seven chapters, but I hope I did it justice. So that's an air horn, air horn, air <laughs> horn moment for me to have you do some of these synopses. Like I was telling you over text, 
a few days ago. I gotta get you to doing more of these chapter synopses, My not pleasure. just the battle chapters. God damn it, more more chapters for Emma to do, and uh, I think that would that would be wonderful. Yeah, the the story in a Dance of Dragons, just the the plot, the character, and the emotional beats of the story are are extremely dynamic, and that comes across even even in a synopsis of the story in, in a Dance with Dragons. But the story, as you know, most of the rest of a Dance with Dragons and a Feast for Crows really is, is rich in themes too, and themes are a major part of of a Dance with Dragons. And George has said specifically that he wrote dance with the idea that he wanted to Im- bed the story with some of the themes he wants to impart for for his fantasy series it's not just about plot it's about what this what the story and the plot actually mean and the major the big one that everyone's can identify for theon's story is the theme of identity throughout a song of ice and fire identity plays a major role in the characters and the story who they are who they were who they're going to be and this thematic through line ramps up to 11 in Feast and Dance as many characters undergo transformations or even immersions through different names. And George also does that thing where he has different characters, different point of view characters adapting monikers like the Prince of Winterfell, for instance. And among these characters in Feast and Dance, the starkest identity crisis is that of Theon Greyjoy. That would make that argument anyways. In 2011, George said, uh, talked about this saying, when you're dealing with Arya and what she's going through, or you're dealing with Theon, you're dealing with something much, much deeper there, where the original identity is being threatened or kind of broken down by one means or another, and maybe is in danger of being lost entirely. The theme of Theon completely losing his identity is inherent throughout A Dance with Dragons, and it's found in several forms. His masculinity, how it's reflected in others, how it's seen in the Castle Winterfell itself, and most prominently, in his name itself. So, Theon's name. The first Theon chapter is... Not Theon, or the Prince of Winterfell, or any of the other monikers. It's Reek. It's a whole different name that Theon has suddenly had. And Theon's story is all about, not all about, but a, a lot about, you have to remember your name. In 2016 at Mysticon, George R. R. Martin gave a long answer to the question of Reek and Theon's identity as Reek, saying, There are three Reeks you know. There's the original Reek who is dead, and then there was the fake Reek who was actually Ramsay Bolton, who pretended to be Reek because you'd know he didn't want to be executed. And then the final Reek, who is of course Theon Greyjoy, who is being made into Reek, his personality destroyed by torture by Ramsay, you know. And I wanted to show the disintegration of a personality and the things that can happen, you know, under a sufficient amount of torture. And you know, breaking someone else. I presented it mostly in flashback in a dance with dragons as opposed to the TV show, which actually showed a lot more of it. But then the books, well that's why I skip over it. And let me think about that and let readers think that Theon is dead for a while, and then he comes back, and hopefully it takes you a while to realize who it actually is. I do remember, and I don't know about you, man, but I remember my first time reading a Dance of Dragons. I had no idea who quote unquote Reek was until the final end of the chapter when Ramsay reveals that Reek is indeed Theon of House Greyjoy. We even have a moment in the first Reek chapter where Theon actually himself completely forgets his original name. My, my name? A scream caught in his throat. They had taught him his name. They had, they had, but it had been so long that he'd forgotten. If I say it wrong, he'll take another finger or worse. He'll, he'll, he would not think about that. He could not think about that. In that void left by inhuman torture, Theon's original name and identity had been replaced by Reek. Reek? Reek? My name is Reek. He had been, he had not been born with that name. In In another life, he had been someone else, but here and now, his name was Reek. He remembered. For Theon, the name of Reek stands in for the transformation of Theon into Ramsay's creature. That name 
to me, is so visceral, showing how Theon has been reduced to Ramsay's creature. He smells bad. He reeks. He's lived in shit and filth and been refused his humanity. So in my own personal viewing experiences, I just watched Paul Schrader's latest movie, The Card Counter, which I really highly recommend that folks watch it. It is an excellent movie. It is an excellent follow-up to his other great movie from 2017, First Reformed. Please. Stop this podcast. No, don't stop this podcast. But after this podcast is done, go and watch the movie. Uh, it's not probably not for everyone, but I do think it, it does speak to some um, really amazing acting by, by Oscar Isaac and a bunch of other folks as well, and also talks about some themes here. But that movie has a lot to do with the consequences of sin, if you want to call it that. Because a big part of the movie is depicting scenes of torture from Abu Ghraib. And those viscerally depict what American soldiers and contractors did at the prison of Abu Ghraib in Iraq. Prisoners are covered in shit. They're beaten. They're humiliated. Their humanity is stripped from them. I think, you know, it's, you know, we see this in Danny's story a lot in A Dance of Dragons, but I think in Theon's story too, you see how a lot of that recent history inspired George in writing Theon Greyjoy's memories of torture, how he became reek. I think that's a great point, a great comparison to what's going on in that movie, The Card Counter. And I think you know, there's a lot of anger about contemporary politics under the surface of A Dance with Dragons. And yeah, I think Theon's chapters in part reflect George's feelings on torture and police brutality. But his focus in these chapters isn't on the violence itself. It's a deep dive into what that violence does to your psyche. The torture is a structuring absence that becomes more powerful for only being implied. I think the show didn't really have much of an opportunity to do this because you're dealing with actual actors. You want to keep them in their contracts. You don't want the audience to forget about them. But I think pretty much everyone agrees season three with Theon when we were being shown the torture just kind of got repetitive and a little on the nose. And I think this actually works much better because George is showing you how much it hurts Theon in the aftermath to even think about what happened to him. As George frames it, torture causes an inner death. It's too painful to be the person you were, so you have to invent a brand new person instead. He writes this compartmentalization as a form of horror. It's like there's a monster inside your head, wearing your face, from which there can be no escape. And this is some of George's best prose, because of how thoroughly he plunges into the fractured, fragmented style to reflect Theon's headspace. We recently talked on the main cast about the formal experimentation in Sam's first chapter in Storm of Swords, the way it jumps between timelines to show the intrusive effect of Sam's hideous experience during the zombie attack on the Night's Watch. Well, what if your whole life was like that? What if that's what you felt like even during downtime, even during what are normal moments for everyone else? You would lose all frame of reference for anything but pain. Maybe this is what it's like to, to be a white, to be one of the zombies possessed mm. by the White Walkers. You would feel like this this level of a lack of control over who you are moment to moment. Theon has been broken down to feral, desperate need, doing whatever it takes to survive and prevent Ramsay from hurting him more. These chapters just, they feel they're gross to read. They're, they're, they're grimy. There's like a layer of filth Theon can't wipe away because that's how he feels about himself. He feels it about himself internally and it's, it's externalized too in terms of of, of what he's he's experienced and, and I think so much of that is found in the name of Reek itself and how it's not just the grimy parts of it it's definitely a massive part of it but also what Theon associates with the name of Reek Theon reminds himself of Reek and what it rhymes with bleak freak leak leak again different different spelling meek peak shriek sneak squeak etc 
Reek is always diminutive, always pushing Theon to view himself as lower than shit, as barely a man. Still, there's a change that starts by the end of Reek 1 and really picks up steam as Theon returns to Winterfell. He starts to think of himself not as Reek, but as Theon again. It's funny, I, I went through the audiobook for Dance with Dragons and Theon's chapters for in preparation for this, this podcast. And Roy Detrice, uh, RIP, does something really interesting. From Reek 1 to 3, Broy adopts a cringing, terrified voice for Reek. But come the Prince of Winterfell, Roy actually returns to his A Clash of Kings Theon voice, and I really, really love that. Now, I'm going to say more of my thoughts about the real emotional catharsis of Theon becoming Theon for later, but Theon slowly recovering his name is one of the best character moments, I think, in the entirety of the story. Agreed, and I think it's it's so powerful because of how much George disorients you at first in those first few chapters and how much the changing of the names on the chapter heading affects that. Like you were saying earlier, this is a, a common motif in Feast and Dance that George starts having titles to lead off chapters instead of just names. And in some storylines, it's just to reflect how there is no one protagonist at the center of things. There's no one protagonist in the Dornish storyline. There's no one protagonist in the Ironborn storyline. So they get titles and they're kind of just circling and orbiting each other. But I think he's it's most powerful with Theon because he's really making an argument just through those chapter headings about how this person conceives of themselves and how we kind of we kind of take a stable POV kind of for granted as the foundation of these chapters. And maybe that needs to be challenged. It's like a maze that we have to sort through along with Theon. But he's he's not he's you know as much as these chapters are about kind of uh, abjection and and giving yourself up and not having control of your life a crucial part of breaking Theon down we learn was making him culpable in his own torment. Ramsay flayed Theon's fingers and toes until Theon begged Ramsay to cut them off to end the pain. So this positions Ramsay as his savior, the source of meaning, the person who decided who Theon is, and he's making Theon take part. So Theon doesn't even have. The luxury, I guess, of feeling powerless. He believes he made all this happen. That he, like, decided to be tortured because of how worthless he is. And he sees that process beginning again with Jane, which is what he can't bear. I may be worthless, but I can help someone else, which demonstrates that he's not worthless. He's still a person. He's still Theon. Now, is being Theon Greyjoy a good thing in isolation? <laughs> not really, from what we saw in Clash of Kings. Not yet, anyway. But it could be. It's that, that constant potential of the human being to improve themselves, which is more than you can say for being reek, because that's just a permanent status. You, you are, you are, you're smelly, you're a dog, you're a worm, you're never going to be anything but what you are. That's a great point. And, you know, Theon, returning to Theon from A Clash of Kings does not feel like a, a triumph of, of Theon, like uh, establishing, reestablishing himself. Because Theon in A Clash of Kings, as we talked about extensively, was a gigantic piece of shit throughout that book. And, you know, that doesn't justify anything that happens to him. But I think, you know, we don't want him to return to that level. We want him to improve, in a sense, as as readers. And we want him to, to be better. And I do think that a version of that was seen in the later seasons of Game of Thrones, which Alfie Allen portraying Theon Greyjoy did a great job of showing how Theon could be better and could be a better version than the version that was seen in season two and in A Clash of Kings. Another aspect of identity which plays a major role in Theon's story in A Dance with Dragons is this whole concept of masculinity. As we talked about in Clash, a central component of Theon's story in Clash is his fragile masculinity which he shrouds with misogyny, rape, and of course murder by the end of the book. 
Dance introduces Theon as a much-changed person, and the largest change in him is, well, the penis that Ramsay removed during the years of torture that Theon underwent. Lord, Ramsay left. You're not a man, Reek. You're just my creature. Of course, George kept it ambiguous that Ramsay castrated Theon in A Dance with Dragons, but come on, it's not that difficult to figure out. Ramsay's sick jokes about Theon fucking Jane first, the washerwomen's mocking seductions of Theon, and Theon's all but thinking of it in his second Reek chapter when he thinks Ramsay has only taken toes and fingers and that uh, other thing when he might have had my tongue or peeled the skin off my legs from heel to thigh. That other thing he references from Reek 2 is, of course, his penis. That begs the uncomfortable question of why Ramsay castrated Theon in the first place. At one level, this demonstrates Ramsay Bolton's sadism, showing how the guy is cast out of the blackest pit of evil Westeros has to offer, alongside of characters like Gregor Clegane and Amory Lorch, and of course that asshole Tywin Lannister. But as George said in St. Petersburg back in the convention appearance in 2017, there's a deeper, there's a deeper level here. Ramsay's torches of Theon allow Theon to be cast down a dark path and transform him into one of Ramsay's creatures. Theon's brittle masculinity is thus shattered or disintegrated in George's parlance. He loses the part of himself that was this tool of his overcompensation. Yes, I, I totally agree. I think that's that's perfect. Like if Theon was a, a great swordsman like Jaime, Ramsay would have cut off his hand. But what Theon cared most about was getting his dick wet. So that's what Ramsay took away. He's just he's tunneling to the core of identity, taking that away. And as, as Jamie thinks uh, to himself in the bathtub in Heron Hall, you know, I've lost my glory. I've lost my shame. Who am I now? And Theon's mm-hmm. chapters in this book are just like that question writ large. The castration was an act of cruelty so profound that it reshaped Theon from within. Even if he escapes Ramsay for good, he'll never have sex again. He'll never father children. And this is just structurally perfect storytelling if you look back at Theon's arc in Clash, because this, the, this is the persona he used in Clash of Kings, and now it's being dismantled and used against him. He's turned into a shadow of himself. He swaggered around, acting like a prince, and now he's a pariah, cringing and shuffling around, forced to smell like his own shit. It's just like he's become this, this perfect mirror image of who he used to be. Hmm. On an audience level, there's something at work with all the tortures here because, that Theon has experienced. We hated Theon by the end of A Clash of Kings. We despised the man. Really, we, as the audience members, wanted to see Theon suffer. That guy deserved it, right? Hmm. The question that George poses to his audience is, how do you feel now after reading Theon's chapters in A Dance with Dragons? How do you like all of the emasculation and suffering that Theon has experienced? Does it feel good to you? No? Interesting that. Maybe wishing for villains to suffer horrifying fates is not necessarily a good thing. Maybe it doesn't provide the catharsis that we desire. Continuing that theme of Theon's brittle masculinity, there's that thematic through line of Theon's feeling of humiliation as seen in people laughing at him and how that changes between A Clash of Kings and A Dance with Dragons. In Clash, Theon was constantly humiliated by the people around him laughing at him, mocking him. Think of about how everyone laughed at Theon during Balon's feast after Asha revealed herself and made mockery of him. And later, Theon even couches his murder of the Miller's boys in that vein of laughter. It is better to be feared than laughed at as Theon thinks in his fourth chapter in Clash. From that wellspring, George draws us deep into Theon's shallow, sinister being and the evil that it reaps. However, by dance, Theon has been much changed by his experience in the Dreadfort. Constantly mocked by Ramsay and his boys, Theon has a different mindset as he thinks in The Prince of Winterfell. Let them laugh. 
His pride had perished here in Winterfell. There was no such place. There was no place for such in the dungeons of the Dreadfort. When you have known the kiss of a flaying knife, a laugh loses all its power to hurt you. I, I should be clear from both of us. No one is advocating for Theon to be tortured, to shrug off his fear of laughter, to kind of ensure that he doesn't have this brittle masculinity. Rather, I think the text and George are arguing that Theon has stared into the face of hell and realizes that there are far worse things in life than being laughed at. In a weird way, and you were referencing this earlier, it reminds me a bit of Samuel Tarley at the end of uh, Storm of Swords when he thinks he didn't have to be scared of a dude like Cotter Pike or Stannis Baratheon. The man killed another. Theon doesn't have to be afraid of laughter because he learned what true fear was actually comprised of. Still, even as Theon regains some of his old self as the narrative progresses in A Dance with Dragons, some of that brittle masculinity in A Clash of Kings makes a reappearance as he thinks about the washerwomen, as he thinks about Jane, as he thinks a little bit about Barbary Dustin. The subtlety at work in Martin's writing of Theon in Dance is that Theon <laughs> doesn't transform into an angel, having been shown the true path of enlightenment. Rather, Theon can and does become a better version of himself, a slightly better version of himself. But some wounds, physical and emotional, don't heal and bleed out from time to time. I think that's a crucial distinction to make. Yeah, I think there's definitely an indictment here of the world around Theon that sees his suffering as a positive thing. And I think that definitely reflects back on the audience as well. But I think it's interesting that George is also avoiding the idea of suffering as a transformative agent that all on its own can just make Theon into a better person. In Lord of the Rings terms, I feel like George is doing like both Frodo and Gollum at the same time with Theon mm. in that he is there is a sense of of Theon as like, uh, you know, there's the latent traces of Catholicism here that, you know, George is writing Theon as a sinner whose trials will restore him to God's grace. But there's also like the kind of the, the lost and split soul element that you get with a character like Gollum. And I think George, part of George is just, is just skeptical of the whole martyrdom idea, and he's trying to express that skepticism in these Theon chapters. There is a, a deliberate meaninglessness to Theon's pain. Like you were saying about him just like repeating the rhyme to himself about reek, reek over and over again. Like that's, this, this isn't an arc really, it's a loop. It's just routines repeated endlessly, these dull throbbing wounds that never fully heal. It's like banging your head against a wall. As you say, the only lesson that torture really teaches Theon is that nothing else compares to it. His old concerns become just meaningless, so I didn't want to get laughed at, but look at where I am now. It's an existential dilemma, almost metaphysical. If Theon, as an identity, can be ground down like this just through sheer physical pain, then was that identity ever real? Is there such a thing as an authentic persona, or is it all just masks over nothing? And that's a source of deep misery for Theon, one that he felt before Ramsay ever showed up. The constructed nature of everything around him, in which everyone but him seems able to access a genuine self. But this can also be a strength. If Theon is only a role that you play, then so is Reek, and he can escape that cage through the same door he entered it, a door inside his own mind. Theon can mean anything. If Theon's story in A Dance with Dragons is all about various forms of imprisonment, then it builds to a hard-won definition of freedom, what it means to truly liberate yourself. And the same way that Sam killing the White Walker doesn't just change his life forever. In fact, no one believes him about it, but there's still <laughs> that, that, that inner victory. Same thing goes on for Theon. I, I, think, I don't think he's ever going to be forgiven by the you know, northern political community at large. He might not even be able to forgive himself for what he's done. But he's able to free himself from the loop, from the idea that he's just stuck this way permanently. And I think George is kind of making an argument about how identity works, that it's it's not this fixed, stable position, that it's something that can change. 
Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that identity thing is that it's not static. Like we have to press on. We cannot get caught in a loop. We are ha- we have to be better versions of ourselves and move on and experience new and different things. And that is certainly something that Theon does, both in his character and also in, in the story. He goes from one point in the story at the start of A Dance with Dragons to a completely different, somewhat different portion in and at by the end of the book but i do think it is interesting too that there is a sense that theon's identity is also reflected not simply in himself but among other characters that we encounter in a dance with dragons i think that really fills out these chapters yeah that that other characters are going through versions of the the same crisis or just the same struggle between poles of identity i mean you see that with with ramsey remember how uh ramsey uh, you know, pretended to be Reek in A Clash of Kings. And then at, at the very end of Theon's story in A Clash of Kings, he reintroduced himself as Ramsay, saying, you know, Snow, my lady wife called me, but I say Bolton. You know, that's mm-hmm. Ramsay in a nutshell. He's got this big chip on his shoulder about being bastard-born, about wanting to be referred to as a Bolton. We see Roos working to, uh, to legitimize him down in King's Landing, but he's still kind of thought of as a bastard and insulted as such uh, in A Dance with Dragons. He, he cuts one dude's head off just for calling him Lord Snow. And, uh, you know, obviously we've had the dispute, we've had the debate before about who wrote the pink letter, and that's an ongoing debate. But <laughs> if you just assume for the moment that it was Ramsay, he signs it Ramsay Bolton, true-born Lord of Winterfell, because that's how he wants to think of himself. And that's an interesting reflection on Theon's own desperate desire to be his father's son and be a proper Greyjoy. And we're seeing kind of the darkest version of that with Ramsay, where he, uh, you know, you'll, you'll do anything, you'll commit any kind of atrocity just to be seen as the, as the proper right kind of man. You see that also, of course, with Jane Poole, who is forced to pretend to be Arya Stark. And the kind of the ghastly irony in that, in terms of Theon wanting to be a Stark, as he tells Barbary. But, uh, but Jane is, like, forced into that position. It's a role she had no control over. It's a role she doesn't want to play, but is forced to. And it shows you that this is kind of, uh, being, being a Stark isn't just about having the bloodline. It's also this kind of this public face, this, this mask you wear. Because that's how the, the northern political community organizes itself. And now the Boltons kind of have control over that image. Even the more minor characters in the background of these chapters. Mance, as always, is pretending to be someone different. That's Mance's whole thing. He's a tricksy bird. He wears many faces. Here he's mm-hmm. pretending to, to be Abel. Which, as many people have pointed out, is an anagram of Bale. Bale the Bard, who's Mance's uh, icon and, and legend in so many ways. He wants to be like him. Be that, that, that dashing singer king. So that's kind of another identity he's living up to. Another kind of image that he wants to be. Even the, uh, the, the Walder phrase... Big and Little Walder, who are often often confused for each other, and Theon uh, tries to remember which one is which, or are these the sons of the boys I used to know early on in <laughs> dance? And um, even, you know, you go back to Theon and Clash of Kings and, you know, the Miller's boys that he pretended were the Starks, that he, he put a different face on them, so to speak, for everyone. And all of this is, is George suggesting that, you know, we can't, we would like to think of identity as this stable core, that, you know, who I am is who I am, and then I interpret the world, every, everyone around me, everything around me through that lens. But I think what you see going on with all these characters in, in Theon's chapters is that it might work the other way around, that identity is something you impose on yourself or that other people impose on you, and then you go from there. And then that's kind of, again, opens up those existential questions. So what really is in me? What is there an inviolate core to who I am? And how does that relate to the names people call me and the names I call myself? 
Yeah, and I, and I think like you, you also see it in, in some of the northern lords and ladies that are present there. And we'll talk about loyalty at, at a long, at a more significant length a little bit later on. But you do see whether what the where Theon's loyalty, where his loyalty truly lies, in the sense that the northern lords may be pretending to be loyal to the Boltons, but have a different perspective when we get get right down to it. I think also with with these other minor characters that, you know. Ramsey works so interestingly because he is so desirous of the Bolton name. He is so desirous to be cast from the the what he considers to be the taint of bastardy that he becomes a Bolton between Clash and a Dance of Dragons, having been legitimized by Tom in, in A Storm of Swords. And yet that change of name doesn't make him a better person. In fact, you could argue that it makes him a much worse person, that the the change isn't always necessarily for the better in the long term, that you can break your loop of bastardy and you can begin to become an even worse version of yourself. And all of this change in identity really works to help us understand Theon better as a character and see how he is manifesting himself at the start of the story and how he ends up at the end of the story. But he has to go through a long process to get to those places. And to get to those places, literally, by walking around, Theon spends a lot of time walking around the castle of Winterfell. And his observations, I think, also do a really good job of showing Theon's identity through the broken and somewhat restored castle of Winterfell. Absolutely. It's a cliche to say the setting is a character in and of itself, but Winterfell definitely is a focus of a lot of these Theon chapters because it's, you know, it's the cradle of the story. It's the setting where George spends so much time in the first couple books, gets us to emotionally associate ourselves with the place, goes into all the details about the different locations within it, you know, the crypts and the broken tower, etc. And then it's just gone for all of A Storm of Swords, all of A Feast for Crows. And then we're back in Winterfell, but it's a, a broken version of it that Ramsay left in ruins that they kind of have to half fix up. And yeah, that clearly is an externalization of what's going on inside Theon. And when he says, you know, kind of the outer world has fallen away and I'm left here with my ghosts, Winterfell has become this crucible for him, this kind of, this trap, this like gravity well drawing him in that he, he can't escape. And there's a, there starts to develop an almost abstract quality to it. Like he says, like Winterfell doesn't even feel like a real place anymore. It feels like a, a, an underworld made of mist where everyone's a ghost. And it's this, like, this, this we're living in the aftermath. We're living in this shadow world that is just not what it was. And I think we might see, just as, as Theon starts returning to an identity he can control again, re- returning to his older name, I think we see that what goes hand in hand with that is the possibility of the current regime falling and Winterfell being restored to the Starks. Yeah, you know, it reminds me so strongly of the end of Bran's story from A Clash of Kings when he's looking mm-hmm. back at Winterfell and he says, The stone is strong, Bran told himself. The roots of the trees go deep and under the ground. The kings of winter sit their thrones. So long as those remained, Winterfell remained. It was not dead, just broken. Like me, Bran thought, I'm not dead either. I think that is reflected in Winterfell in Theon's story because Theon is broken he is a broken man in this story but he's not dead either and it can it it can be restored theon can be not restored to the person he was in a clash of kings but maybe stored to a better person better better version of himself as i was talking about earlier i think the setting of winterfell is such an interesting thing um in 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 a dance with dragons and one of the things I, i love about all of the descriptions of winterfell is how the stones are still there, but it almost feels like uh, the castle itself is rejecting its occupiers. Hmm. You know, the snow is falling down. 
breaking the the stable, killing the stable, killing, you know, two men in the stables and a dozen horses as you were talking about in your synopsis. And also just making everyone feel miserable because they don't belong there. Almost like the Crips of Winterfell telling John in his dreams that the, he doesn't belong. Winterfell is, is telling the Boltons that they don't belong there either. This is the place of the Starks. And, you know, the castle itself is is a, a rallying cry. It's used by the Boltons as the place to solidify their hold on the north. But it ends up kind of backfiring against the Boltons, too, because Stannis is coming and there is the potential that Stannis can rescue Arya Stark and restore Winterfell to the Starks, potentially, maybe, or the Karstarks, either or. And there is the potential, too, that Stannis could restore Theon, though, as we'll cover hopefully here in the next few months. Not necessarily the case when we catch up with Theon and Stannis and their, their, one of their interactions uh, to, to kick off that Theon chapter in A Dance with Dragons. Or rather, that Theon chapter in The Winds of Winter. And all of those lords in Winterfell, all of them starting to squabble and the open violence that breaks out by the end of Theon's A Dance with Dragons story bring, really brings up this question of who is truly on the side of each other? Who do the Boltons truly have? And where does Theon's loyalty truly lie in the story? Yeah, loyalty is another big theme, I think, in Theon's Dance with Dragons chapters. And this, these, uh, you know, fluid identity struggles and the question of whose side you're on in the Civil War naturally brings up the question of loyalty and who you owe your service to and who, which bonds matter the most. This is something Theon already struggled with in A Clash of Kings when he felt caught between his ironborn self and his Stark self and was ultimately able to serve neither in his attempts to serve both. And now he's left with this question of where his loyalty lies now. You know, there's you know, what, what does Theon owe the North? Does he owe the Stark something for his, his turning against them in A Clash of Kings? And he feels tremendous guilt, clearly, about what he did specifically to the Miller's boys. He wishes at some level that he had died with Rob, that he had had a, a glorious death in service to the closest thing he had to a true brother, rather than kind of being left alive, left in this state where he's kind of alone with his decisions. And he is, he's despised by the northern community. He's treated as a pariah. They still spit at him and call him Theon Turncloak and wrinkle their nose up when he passes. And there's just, there's just never any acknowledgement. Like in class, there's just never any acknowledgement that Theon, Theon's loyalty was divided to begin with. That it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily clear that he really owed himself to the Starks and to the North, given that he was born on the Iron Islands. His last name is Greyjoy, and he was taken as a ward, is the polite term, but really a hostage against his father, raising any further rebellions. So in a sense, he really never had a cloak to turn, and that's that's something that's never acknowledged by anyone around him, and I think it's it's something that Theon has to deal with on his own terms. You know, broadening out to the other characters, there's also the question of what these former Stark vassals owe in terms of loyalty. Do do they should they just knuckle under under the new regime to prevent further chaos and bloodshed, especially in the face of winter, or should they devote themselves to restoring the Starks? There's that tension between peace and war. I think we see running through a lot of a dance with dragons. John trying to make peace with the wildlings. Danny trying to make peace with her enemies in Slaver's Bay. Even in isolated terms, Jamie having the one chapter where he's trying to make peace between the Blackwoods and the Brackens. And we see that very strongly in these northern chapters. You have this cherished memory of the Starks that we kind of just take as gospel, that they ruled wisely and well, that they were decent people on the whole. <laughs> they had a good model of justice. But that's really challenged by Barbary, who uh, loves only dead Starks and kind of despises the Stark as an institution and didn't even like Ned Stark. Ned Stark, our dad, who we're supposed to love. But for Barbary, he's the enemy. And she she kind of loves this opportunity to to take them down a peg. And she doesn't feel loyalty to, to them. And that makes us realize what an in-between moment this really is. And that if things had gone differently, you know, a few generations down the line, maybe we'd be talking about the, the glorious Bolton reign and how, you know, the Starks were only a blip 
historically, and now the Boltons have shown up to rule the North forevermore, and you, you can't necessarily take these things for granted. Loyalties can change. And, you know, the Boltons are trying to establish themselves as legitimate rulers. Roos is trying to earn some loyalty, but it, it's always ruined by Ramsay. And Ramsay is just the kind of guy that no one is loyal to because of how his, his, his uh, harsh, sadistic attitudes, but also how just kind of cringy and try hard and edge lord he is he's just he doesn't he doesn't make you feel good and impressive for following him so no one no one really wants to do it um but i think it's interesting in terms of the question of loyalty that the big problem here for a lot of folks is obviously the red wedding they can't be loyal to a regime that that massacred their family members uh, so dishonorably but most of that is directed not at Rus but at the phrase because i think that's like a politically safe target for the people of the mm-hmm. north because you know mm-hmm. Even the more stark loyal ones have to keep in mind, well, there might not be a stark restoration. We might be stuck with Rus in the long term. But the phrase, fuck them, they're outsiders, <laughs> they're directly responsible, they hosted the Red Wedding, we're not going to feel any loyalty to them. Uh, and I think that's, that's, that's kind of an interesting political uh, mindset that they have. Agreed. I think, oh, sorry, go no, ahead. No, go for it. That's a good breaking point. Jump in. No, I think that's that that's that's wonderfully said. I think, you know, the the phrase are convenient political enemies and not scapegoats necessarily for Roose Bolton because they absolutely participated in the Red Wedding, but they do kind of stand in for northern feelings about Roose Bolton because obviously these northern lords and ladies and the people who are serving under them are not stupid. They know that Roose Bolton played a part. He arrived back in Winterfell with practically his entire army intact. What really do they think happened at the Twins since they know that Roose Bolton was also there because he is arriving back with a massive Frey army at his back in order to secure his hold on the North? I do think that there is an interesting idea that's in kind of subtle in A Dance with Dragons that Roose brought the phrase up specifically to direct anger mm-hmm. away from himself. That like, oh, well, I I might have done some shit in the past, but hey, look at all these phrase right here. Aren't they just the fucking worst? And... So he kind of like uses them as as a means of kind of uh, assuaging somewhat the the anger of the North and directing and focusing that anger away from himself and onto an external factor, namely House Frey. I I do think it it is interesting that there is that tension in the North about people who are angry at the Red Wedding and people who are pro-Stark. And we do see that contrast found in the different Northern houses that take sides in the coming battle and war between the Boltons and Stannis, with many of the northern northern clansmen joining up with Stannis, and some of the more older noble houses joining up with with the Boltons. But even those northern houses are not necessarily loyal to the Boltons themselves, and even those that may be a little bit more loyal, like Barbary Dustin, are rather angry about what happened at the Red Wedding. As she says, the North remembers Frey, as she tells Selsa uh, 80s Frey at one point in, in one of the later Theon chapters. So that loyalty aspect is is a very powerful dynamic. And the, politi- the politics of, of the North in A Dance with Dragons are especially interesting. And it really does also ground us in a larger perspective of the Starks. You mentioned Lady Barbary Dustin and her perspective of Ned Stark, which I think is just a really well-written part of Theon's story. Because we've always loved Ned Stark. There's the only people who have hated Ned Stark are assholes like Tywin Lannister, you know, psychopaths like Cersei Lannister. These people we don't are not necessarily sympathetic to. And now we have a relatively sympathetic character in the form of Barbary Dustin who shows a different perspective of Ned Stark. Having a different perspective really gives a larger picture of the North and of the politics of the realm. And again, it's one of those things, factors why I think that the unstory in dance is seen is 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 seen positively by by most fans in the story. 
but you know, all of this loyalty talk about the Northern Lords sometimes overshadows that there are other questions of loyalty because there are a few Ironborn dudes left in the North, even after Victorian sails away to absolutely sit the Seastone chair. Yeah, speaking of the Ironborn, yeah, left behind in Mokalen, that, that that also brings up the question of loyalty when Theon interacts with them because uh, on the whole in most of Theon's dance chapters it's focused on the northern political community the, the Stark half that he was struggling with but there is still that engagement with the Ironborn half when he sees them left behind by Victorian in this sorry state and that's how he feels he feels like he was abandoned by the Greyjoys and now he's been wrecked physically and emotionally and that's the state they're in as well but he that that relationship doesn't get to bloom he doesn't get to heal himself or you know he has that one moment when he hears that you know they, they've been fighting hard, and he thinks to himself, "We're Ironborn with a flash of pride." But that moment mm. is is over immediately because what he's there to do is to turn them over to Ramsay's tender mercies. You know, are, and so the question becomes: What loyalty does he owe them? Does he should he be trying to save them from Ramsay? But does he even really have a choice? He thinks throughout that that whole set piece that if he runs, Ramsay will hunt him down, and they'll you know the, the Ironborn are in such sh- sorry shape they're probably going to be wiped out anyway. So what does loyalty possibly mean under such circumstances? It's kind of being squeezed out of him. And Ramsey clearly has, you know, arranged this for him as a, as a test of this, this new identity and his new loyalties. And, and Theon has no choice but to carry it out. Really, the only the, the person he has a chance to help is Jane Poole. And that becomes this undercurrent in Theon's chapters of, of trying to help Jane and seeing a reflection of himself in Jane. And he does start to feel like he, he owes her something because Barbary might say that the, the Northmen don't like hearing her cry, but they're not going to do shit about it. They're not going to get mm. her out of there. Her playing the role of Stark is something that's politically convenient for them in the moment. Theon is really the only one in the position to do anything about it precisely because he's at the bottom of the power structure and because his loyalties don't have to lie elsewhere. They can lie with his fellow martyr, his fellow innocent victim. And that becomes one of the more emotionally powerful elements of these chapters. But it's interesting that, that Theon also does, at some level, feel a twisted sort of loyalty to Ramsay that Ramsay has kind of enforced. It's not just fear. It's also this sense of love that Theon kind of worships Ramsay. So much of Theon's POV in this book is about how Ramsay has become this divine figure of wrath in Theon's mind, that he's, he's the devil in the sense that he's inflicting immense pain on Theon down in hell of the dungeons of the Dreadfort. But he's also an angel in that Theon feels like Ramsay was sent to punish him for his sins. And part of Theon has become accustomed to the taste of that hatred because he thinks he deserves it and because as long as someone else is telling him he's terrible he doesn't just have to think about how terrible it is he has can someone else do it for him hmm. and theon thinks of himself at some level as as ramsey's creature and that this is the person to whom he he owes something because because ramsey knows who he is and i think it's the, the themes of identity and loyalty kind of come together there i i am reek this is who i am and what reek means is serving ramsey and theon has to actively uh, break away from that you know the he jumps with jane in part just to save her but also because he thinks i'm not i'm not going back to ramsey and that alone is a big decision because part of theon always wants to go back to ramsey part of theon is is thinking man i could sell abel and the washerwoman out to ramsey and prove my loyalty but he makes the decision not to do that he makes the decision that his loyalty lies with her and with himself and so i think you know you, you, you put all this together and you get this kind of question that emerges from theon's chapters both in clash and dance and that is that is loyalty really worth it are these bonds more trouble than they're worth is is there any of these connections that actually ennoble and help the individuals involved or is it all just a cage is it all just kind of denying your freedom and i think that's something you can actively see people searching for in this northern plot of a dance with dragons i think maybe the 
the overall best answer is offered not in the Theon chapter, but in an Asha chapter, when Big Bucket Wool talks about going off and fighting and dying for the Ned's girl. Not even entirely because they love her or even because they love Ned, but because the alternative is just meaningless. The alternative is just waiting mm. for winter to kill you. So you just you need loyalty to replace that void. You just need you need something to believe in, and maybe it doesn't even matter what that something is. And Theon, I think, finds that with Jane. I think with Jane, there's there's that great series of lines that Jet that Theon repeats to himself, starting in Reek three, a uh, Reek two rather, and then proceeding to the end of the book, where he thinks about her eyes. Her eyes are wrong. Mm-hmm. Blue eyes, not brown eyes. Blue eyes, not brown eyes. And how is everyone buying into this this deception? And the reason why everyone's buying into the deception is what's what's the alternative that they they admit that they're that they are are kind of like living with someone who participated in the red wedding would they, do they admit them that to their own these lords admit them to their own vassals to their own people kind of something that they they have to kind of all buy into the lie there and and i think you know i was when i was rereading reek 2 when theon is with the ironborn the real sense i got from that chapter was that these are the ironborn who have been left behind they were not good enough to accompany victarion to the king's moot and in a way, they all kind of personify Theon. He wasn't good enough to sail with the main Iron Fleet with Asha Greyjoy to attack Deepwood Mott in A Clash of Kings. He wasn't good enough to go with Victarion to moat Caelan. He had to raid the Stony Shore and harry the Stony Shore, as Balin Greyjoy said, in, in A Clash of Kings. And so he was kind of left out and cut out of the, the power arrangements for uh, for that for Balin Greyjoy's plans in, in A Clash of Kings. And, you know, this this kind of dynamic of seeing a character reflected in, in others is is a really smart uh, play by, by George R. R. Barton and really uh, does does wonders for the writing of Theon's character in, in this book. You talked about it so well about what's happening with Jane, because, you know, Theon has this kind of sick sense of loyalty to Ramsay as developed through the intense amount of torture that he's experienced under Ramsay has become his own creature. But he starts to see that in Jane Poole as well, when Jane is there and they approach him in his final chapter and he thinks, and she says, no, 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 this is, this is just a, a, a joke by my sweet Lord. I love my sweet Lord. I can, how could I possibly leave him? You know, that's Theon seeing himself in her and not wanting her to become like the way that he has become in the form of Reek. And so I think that does contribute to why he ends up jumping with her at the end of the book rather than return her to Ramsay, which I think is, is, is a wonderful, beautiful note at the end of the story that he would rather that someone else did not become the way that he became. But, you know, all of those identity, those questions of, of identity and masculinity and how Theon is reflected in other characters, they, they are, they're awesome and they're amazing. But the thing that a lot of people pull out of Theon's story, especially in the later chapters in A Dance of Dragons for Theon, is that there's a lot of kick-ass mystery and espionage going on in the story. And those are some plot-relevant portions of the chapter that lots and lots of people love. Yeah, I was referring to Theon's dance story earlier as a horror story, and it definitely is that. It definitely starts off that way. But gradually, as he gets to Winterfell especially, it starts moving into another genre, mystery and the espionage going on. The North is like a simmering pot ready to boil over with all these kind of conspiracies and wheels within wheels at work, and it all just filters through Winterfell, where they're all crammed together and all these plans can just kind of bounce off each other. It actually starts off as early as the first chapter, when you get a couple people sitting with Ramsay at dinner when Theon is brought before him. And he doesn't identify them by name, but with a few context clues, especially on reread, you can figure out this is Arnolf Karstark and Hutter Horsbane Umber. And both of them have their own plans. Arnolf is a, is a double agent for the Boltons that pretends to be on Stannis' side. The Umbers, I think, 
You can see that they might be actually secret Stark agents, especially because Crow Food shows up to besiege Winterfell. So everyone's got their their public facing plan and their private plan. Roost does as well. I love the bit at Moat Kalin after the Ironborn have been cleared out. When the guy wearing Roost Bolton's armor turns out not to be Roost, he turns out to be a body double, and Roost is actually hidden back in his carriage, setting up right away. There's always there's always another layer between beneath what's going on here in the North in a Dance with Dragons. Everyone is pretending to be someone else. There's always a lot of misdirection. And you see all this kind of tension playing out among the Northmen uh, under the surface. You know, we don't have POVs from Wyman Manderley or Barbary Dustin that the people making these secret plans. You just kind of see what they let reach the surface and just hints as to what's going on. Like, I love that bit with the lock at White Harbor in Davos's chapters when he says, you know, Roos is cold and cruel, but we can maybe make a deal with him. We can't make a deal with Ramsay. And I think that reflects the kind of debates and discussions going on that the Northmen have to keep secret. There's this universal hatred of the phrase. We were talking earlier about the phrase as kind of being the, the target for the Northmen's anger about the Red Wedding. But it's balanced against their, their military power. You know, they have a large army. They're with Roos and his large army. So the Northmen can't yet directly act against them. So they have to work in the shadows. They have to work in terms of, of spycraft and espionage and sending messages. So you get, you know, Wyman taking out Freys on the road and cooking them into pies. And none of that is explicitly said. You just kind of have to figure it out from the clues you get. You get the Mormons and the Mountain Clans marching with Stannis. Who knows if their loyalties are really with him? I think, as, as many people have said before, it's probably they're just kind of using Using him as a blunt object against the Boltons, and their real plans lie with Stark Restoration. And you got Barbary, who's like just a, a kind of conspiracy world unto herself. <laughs> the way she has her own plans to maybe prop up Bruce, but maybe advance her own power. And she's got this this whole speech she gives about about the Maesters and the Southron ambitions, and how the Maesters can't be trusted, and they have their own plans. And whatever you think about the details of her accusations, it again establishes this this mood of mystery and this mood of like you know, there's everything is an iceberg, and there's a lot more going on beneath the surface than you know. And if you you scratch any one of these characters, you're going to find a lot more going on than appears. You get a crow food umber showing up outside the walls, but you don't know what's him at first. You think it might be Stannis, even though, wait, that doesn't make sense with the Asha chapters, so it's another mystery. Who is this outside the walls? Who's pounding those drums? Who's blowing those horns? Probably the most prominent example of this in terms of the plotting is the murders that crop up in the later Theon chapters at Winterfell. Theon himself compares it to what went down at Winterfell and Clash. It's also similar to what went down in Harrenhal and Clash when Arya had her three wishes, right? Her three people she killed with Jock and Hagar. But the difference is in that case, we had Arya's direct POV. We saw what she was doing. We saw her pick her victims. We saw how it played out in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, that's that's not the case. The murders are a mystery to Theon and to everyone else around him that people are actively trying to solve. You know, as, as you were saying earlier, it seems almost like the castle itself is doing this. Like, like there's this mm. this consciousness within Winterfell that is killing these people, and that it's very mysterious. And I, I love that. As it turns out, from what we can gather, again, it's never completely confirmed, but from what we can gather, most of the murders are being done by the Spearwives, except for Little Walder, and that was Big Walder. Because, of course, Big, <laughs> Big Walder's got the, uh, he's got the frozen, he's, got, he's, he's spattered with blood, even though Little Walder was found with frozen blood. So Big Walder didn't just find the body, it's implied, no, he actually did the killing. And I love that because neither the Spearwives nor Big Walder are actually at the center of the, of the political struggles over who's going to rule the North, over where their loyalty lies. What both of them do is realize, oh, there's all this tension. There's all these mm -hmm, factions. Mm -hmm. So we can take advantage of that situation, that barely restrained animus, and we can carry out our own little plots because no one's going to think it's us because there's already this pre-existing Stark versus Bolton thing that everyone's going to blame it on. So we, under that surface, we can carry it out. And I just love that from a political standpoint like, like that's that's what clever political actors do they don't 
always act openly. They, they make sure that there's a cover for their actions and then they kind of, they carry out their own plots underneath the surface. But it's, it's just, it's part of what makes it so interesting to watch that unfold is that we're locked into Theon's perspective and he can just barely process any of this or, or even really take part. And he's not even super interested just because he's so locked within his own pain. So you're just getting these these flashes of what people are up to from the perspective of the absolute bottom of the ladder. Like, I feel like the, the scene in Roos's Solar in the chapter of Ghost in Winterfell is representative when he's being called in about the murders as a potential suspect. But, like, they immediately realize, oh, Theon, you know, you're way too, like, physically and mentally you are not in a state to be ki- to be killing these people and so they, and they just kind of leave him there standing while they conspire and fight among themselves and i think that's that's that sums up exactly what's going on here because all these mysteries all these espionage plots but we're locked in the pov of a person who really can't have any impact over them and i think that's interesting i think it's interesting too i think uh, you know when when bruce presents theon to to barbara dustin in in reek 3 the first question she asks after like oh what is that smell is is he, is he mad and bruce is like Mayhaps he's mad. Mayhaps he's 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 mad. So he that allows George to give a a skewed perspective of events that are happening in Winterfell and allows for that unreliable narrator that George loves so much to come out into into force and really allows for a lot of the political uh, underhanded things that are happening in Winterfell to occur outside of Theon's purview, or he can only catch like glimpses or snatches uh, of those things. And for me, I think the best example of that is found in the very famous person who I think has been talked about way too much, mm-hmm. but the hooded man of Winterfell. Mm-hmm. You knew where I was going with this, right? Where he gets like uh, three whole sentences about this guy going through Winterfell who calls Theon a turned cloak. And, um, you know, Theon wonders for a moment if this guy is the murderer. Um, and uh, not only turned cloak, but also calls him a kinslayer too. And who the identity of this person might be. And there's all sorts of theories out there, whether it's one of the Northmen that have come up from the Brother Without Banners, whether it's whether it's Crowfood Umber or someone else that's kind of like sneaking around the castle, or even the question, which I, I've always loved, the idea of, of the Theon Durden theory, that it's the version of Theon himself going throughout the castle. And, you know, that's that that really presents a really air of mystery about Theon's later, Theon's chapters throughout, uh, throughout A Dance with Dragons. I, I do think that... Um, all of the plotting and conspiring happening in the shadows is really interesting uh, because it's almost, you know, it's almost made for people who write about A Song of Ice and Fire. Now, of course, the industry, so to speak, didn't really exist back in 2010, 2011, when George was writing A Dance with Dragons. But these are, there are a lot of, uh, of mysteries inherent in the story, which have allowed for a lot of very creative, not always correct theories, but always ones that are very interesting, such as things like the Grand Northern Conspiracy, which is, of course, one of our patron episodes we covered a, a little while ago, in which we Unpack the entirety of the uh, the GNC, but a lot of that is sourced to Theon's chapters in A Dance with Dragons because they are so full of mystery and so full of intrigue. So I guess you know my final question to you, sir, about Theon and the themes of of A Dance with Dragons inherent in Theon's story is: Is Theon's Theon Greyjoy's story in Dance with Dragons is it a redemptive? Is it a redemption arc? Is this the is this the redemption arc that Jamie Lannister had in A Storm of Swords? Is what I'm basically asking. Ah, my favorite fandom phrase: redemption arc. Yeah, I think, you know, it's at some level, like, yes, quite literally, that's what's going on in that you have uh, Bran as this god king figure kind of emerging from the heart tree, intervening to say Theon's name, almost kind of blessing him. But, you know, I I think I I would call that mercy before I call it anything else. And to be honest, I'm not even sure what 
redemption really means in a secular context or if you're talking about <laughs> fictional characters like i i understand from the outside kind of what it means in a, in a spiritual religious sense but i'm i'm i don't really even know what it is exactly we're saying when we talk about redemption arcs in practice in fandom discourse it usually seems to boil down to is it okay that I'm interested in this character or am I a bad person for being interested in this character? Which I think is just kind of immature and has just become an exhausting part of the discussion at this point. <laughs> in the real world, rehabilitation is the word that makes more sense to me, I think, than redemption. And for me, the point is that Ramsey has made rehabilitation impossible for Theon. When you've been tortured into disassociation, when you have to spend your days dealing with the pain and trying not to get even more hurt... There's just no bandwidth to spend on examining your own behavior and trying to improve it. Same with how the rest of the Northmen treat Theon. If he's doomed to pariah status, like Jaime the Kingslayer, well, why should he ever try to do better? He's, he's just going to be this way forever, according to them. And it, it makes me think of the broken man speech and about how Septon Maribald says at the end that we should fear the broken men, but we should pity them as well. And in that light, I think the real arc here isn't even Theon's. It's ours. It's the reader's arc that we're being challenged to recognize that what we call justice is usually just punishment, that there might mm. be no such thing as objective justice and that what we do to try to do the right thing might end up making things even worse. So we don't we don't get like, you know, a, an overall reckoning with who Theon was in the past and who he wants to be now. We just we get this moment of grace at the very end. Theon's leap with Jane, his leap to faith. Does this make up for what he's done? No, of course not. Nothing could. I think that's an unreasonable standard. What it does demonstrate is that he is still capable of doing good in the world. And you can call that whatever you want, but I think it's an immensely powerful moment, as we've been saying. Made all the more so by the fact that this final chapter in which he takes the leap is entitled, at last, Theon. It demonstrates a control over himself. That is the first step toward changing his behavior. And punishment for his crimes made this moment less likely not more. And, you know, to be fair, I think there's no real resolving that contradiction. We don't want to just let people off scot-free for doing horrible things. But the tools we use in response usually make the situation worse. Again, I think this is in part George's commentary on, on imprisonment in general. There's just, there's just a lot more that needs redeeming than Theon the individual. It makes me think of uh, Battlestar Galactica and that scene we both love in the courtroom when Gaius Baltar is on trial and Leodama is talking about we can't just shove this one guy out an airlock and pretend that fixes society and pretend that fixes everything else that all the rest of us have done collectively. Theon is both abuser and victim. He's a child killer and a holy martyr. And the complexity of his character is reflected in the identity confusion we were talking about. It's not clear what to do with Theon because it's not even clear who he is. That's a wonderful point. I think that's that's absolutely true. And I think that that definitively answers the question of whether Theon's story is redemption arc when it comes to the moral sense of the word. I think rehabilitation is a much better way of, of talking about it. Can Theon become a person beyond the child killing, mur murdering rapist that he that he was in A Clash of Kings? Can he advance beyond the story, the story version of him being Reek in A Dance with Dragons and become Theon, become a better person? person as a result he is still capable of good and i think that the unchumped moment is exactly as you said that demonstration of theon's ability to change for the better now now for me this is not an amazing revelation but i think the common understanding of a redemption story is bad guy becomes good over time or maybe does better in that pleb context sure theon's story is one of redemption 
But I think there's even a baser level at work in the emotional storytelling of Theon's story and whether it is actually a redemption story. It's kind of, does the audience feel better by the end of the story? Oh man, I remember my first time reading Theon's The Dance with Dragons chapters, I was practically begging Theon to save Jane Poole, to wrench free of Ramsay. George really takes his time drawing out Theon jumping with Jane and escaping Ramsay. But when that moment comes, it works to inculcate an immense feeling of catharsis for readers because Theon is in a better place by the end of the story. But Theon's story, interestingly, doesn't end in his final point of view chapter in A Dance with Dragons. One of the central features of Theon's A Dance with Dragons story is his identity, his name. And the ultimate moment of triumph for Theon's A Dance with Dragons story is found when readers see him one final time in Asha's The Sacrifice chapter when Tycho Nestoris brings him to Stannis' camp at the Corrupter's Village. Because it's just one of the most powerful moments in A Song of Ice and Fire and I can't talk about it enough, I'm just going to read the whole scene out in full. A girl and an old man thought Asha as the two were dumped rudely in the snow before her. The girl was shivering violently even in her furs. If she had not been so frightened, she might have been pretty, though the tip of her nose was black with frostbite. The old man, no one would ever think him comely. She had seen scarecrows with more flesh. His face was a skull with skin, his hair bone white and filthy, and he stank. Just the sight of him filled Asha with revulsion. He raised his eyes. Sister, see? This time I knew you. Asha's heart skipped a beat. Theon? His lips skinned back in what might have been a grin. Half his teeth were gone, and half of those still left to him were broken and splintered. Theon, he repeated. My name is Theon. You have to know your name. Did I feel good after reading this for the first time back in 2012? Did I feel good rereading that right now here on December 14th, 2021 when we're recording this episode? Yes, I did. So, verdict is absolutely a redemption story. Well said, sir. And yeah, I think it's... Maybe when we talk about redemption, we we are are aiming for a more objective standard than really exists, and we need to re-engage mm. with things more on a, a moment-to-moment subjective emotional reaction to to a moment like that, and stop thinking about it in terms of like you know the ledger of Theon's soul when he comes before the pearly gates, and more thinking about it as about what it takes to for a person to conceive of themselves as different, and what it takes for a person to be aware of their own capacity for goodness and how we like to we might like to think it would be just as easy as waking up one day and deciding to do the right thing but it's really not that simple and we're being taken to that point with theon i think that's just great so Mm -hmm. i think we're going to close out this episode by talking more specifically about some of our favorite individual scenes and chapters in theon's arc and a dance with dragons i'm going to kick it off by talking about uh, about our favorite chapters and i think it's, it's really hard for me to pick a favorite chapter for theon and dance because they're all really good and I think they all uh, flow really well together. And there's not there's not one that stands out as like the obvious great one, like the Red Wedding for Catalan and Storm or something. I think they're all really great. But if I had to pick one, I would go with his second chapter at Moat Kaelin. I think this is just an exceptionally well-written chapter. If the first chapter exists to just kind of scare you back into Theon's mindset and reflect the, the disillusionment and the pain, really the, the overall plot and the, the central themes we've been talking about really take root in his second chapter at Moat Kaelin. I love how George plays it as a flip side to the other chapter we spend in Moat Kaelin back in book one, the Catalan chapter where Rob is gathering his armies together there before marching to the Riverlands because there's this wonderful emotional passage where Theon thinks about when I was this other man, when this other man came this way he was handsome he had spears and swords he was surrounded by his friends and an army and now look at the situation we're in where everything is, mm. is everything is rotting and there's no one left and i'm this this, this 
broken other person. So you really get a sense of the gap and of how things have changed, not only for Theon, but for this entire environment. And the environment is just so well written. There's just such a strong sense of atmosphere. You can almost just like smell all the rot and just the the swamp and the the broken stones and the animals running everywhere and the ironborn who are or sick and delusional and just kind of pathetic but still dangerous. It's it's just just incredibly rich imagery. You get such a such a feeling of Moat Kalen as this distinct location. And I think, you know, in, in the show, Theon's storyline was just was kind of chopped up at this point, and they were just kind of plucking individual things out of a dance with dragons. You didn't get quite the same cohesive character structure you get in the books, but I do think that they nailed this as an overall set piece when they did this. The the, the mist around Moat Kaelin, Theon as this kind of lone skeletal writer with his white flag, and then the the, the sick dread and horror of what happens to the Ironborn after they surrender. I think it's, it's well executed, and yeah, I'll, I'll never forget uh, reading this chapter for the first time. It's a great one. Oh, I love Reek too. And I think, you know, I can see why you love it as well, because it is really good on the horror and the body horror part. Uh-huh. I had forgotten the part of the chapter where one of the Ironborn um, soldiers talks about how the white snakes like crawl up from like the cellars to come and bite the Ironborn. Yeah. Like, right. Like, oh, man, like that's some that's some real body horror there. But I also love the scenes from Reek too, where Theon is remembering where each individual a member of, of of Rob Stark's army was like parked. Oh, here were the umbers in this part of the castle. This is where Rob Stark himself was. This is where everything was. And now look at what this place looks like now. It is a very evocative chapter. Like you say, it really does get a sense of where the story has come so far. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about Theon's story and dance is that when you look back at a Game of Thrones and look at, and then compare it to a Game of Thrones to, to a rather to a Dance with Dragons, you really get the sense that a lot has changed, and not necessarily for the better for for the for the for the story, and that's reflected in the land and the castle of Moat Kaelin itself. I, I think that there is. There, there are so many th- wonderful things about Reek Two, horrifying things too. Where Ramsay, you know, or excuse me, where Theon wakes up and he's hearing the scream of the Ironborn out there in the distance and falls back asleep because he's finally drunk for the first time since probably a, a Clash of Kings at that point. And then he comes back and he sees all of the dead Iron Ironborn men s- staked into the ground there. And then of course Bruce Bolton shows up at the end of the the chapter, which is a a. a being introduced to that character we had not seen since the storm of swords was 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 very powerful as well and then of course we have like i was talking about earlier about theon realizing for the first time that oh no this is not Arya. her eyes are wrong this is jane jane it rhymes with pain but yeah the reek 2 is a great chapter but what about some individual scenes that you loved about uh about theon's story in a dance with dragons well one scene that i think a lot of people pluck out as being exceptionally well written in these chapters is Theon's scene down in the crypts with Barbary Dustin. This is where we get to learn a lot more about her and her backstory, why she feels this way about the Starks, and how it ties into Theon. I think it expresses everything George is going for so succinctly when Theon asks her why she hates the Starks, and she says, well, for the same reason you love them, that you wanted to be one and never could, and that's how I feel too. And that, that great sense of being stuck on the outside of something great and important and old 
and it, it, it makes us really consider that for all we have become invested in the stark image from the very beginning of the story, what does it feel like to be kind of left out of, out of the cold with regards to that? What does it feel like to not be part of the pack but have to be part of the pack and the, the kind of broken identity that results? We see that play out vividly with Theon. It turns out Barbary has been through kind of a, a similar thing. Everyone is just trying and failing to be the Starks. And for Barbary in particular, it has to do with the hangover from Robert's Rebellion, which is one of George's favorite themes. He brings that up with a lot of different characters. You see that with Ned and Robert right at the beginning of the story at Winterfell, down in those crypts, just reckoning with the weight of time and how their youthful ideals have fallen away and how all they want is Lyanna back, but they're never going to get her back. And she's kind of permanently young because she never uh, got to be older. And the same thing applies here, but with regards to Brandon, Barbary is you know, talking about her memory of Brandon, the life she could have lived with him, but but history and fate intervene to, to pull them apart. And, you know, George is, is not the best at writing sex scenes, but I think this is this is one of the more erotic moments in the story. Ironically, it's between a human and a statue. It's, she's just describing <laughs> sex in, in retrospect, but, that you know, putting his, her hand on his knee and that sudden fire in her eyes. You know, especially in these chapters that are literally and figuratively cold, and a lot of the emotion has been bled dry out of Theon's life, certainly the sexuality has. It's, it's like this little flicker of a candle flame, of, of a real connection between people and a real longing to have these people back. And we see how Barbary has allowed that to kind of freeze and twist in her over time to the point where she hates Ned, which really isn't fair because, like, you know, it wasn't like Ned... It wasn't like Ned's foolish leadership got Lord Dustin killed. It wasn't like Ned was an incompetent or irresponsible commander. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she it was, she begged Lord Dustin to stay, and he didn't. And but Barbie is kind of in the same way that the, all the Lords of the North are focusing their rage about the Red Wedding purely on the phrase. Barbie has kind of redirected her rage about what happened with Brandon and her husband onto Ned. And now she's she's declaring war not only on the Starks but on their legacy. His bones are never going to come back. I'm getting rid of historical continuity. I'm you know if his kids are still alive, they're not going to have this this nice place they can come visit at him it's the opposite of ned ensuring that brandon and liana had crypts down there in the first place and i I love that you know just the ashes of love the sense you can get of something that meant so much that when you lose it 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 carves your heart out and that's what theon is dealing with too Mm -hmm. another scene i love uh another winterfell chapter is the the wedding between ramsey and jane and the the feast that follows this is, I think, kind of just like the, the centerpiece of Theon's Dorina Dance with Dragons, where all the kind of loose threads are brought together before they can spread out again into mystery and espionage for the rest of the book. Again, the, the imagery is incredibly vivid. This George's prose in, in dance is sometimes inconsistent, but when it's good, it's his absolute best. And I think you see that here when, when Theon describes the, the ruins seeming like they're underwater and everyone is only kind of half lit and the tree just emerges from the mist with Ramsay beneath it. It's a very dramatic reintroduction to Winterfell, which, like I said earlier, we've been away from for a long time and is in a very different state than last we saw it. But this really grounds us in, in the new slash old Winterfell and the way it's it's seeming to shift in the mist between different faces and different identities. And you just get the, the wonderful Barbary monologues when she gets drunk at dinner and is talking about the maesters and is talk, talking about Roos. And you get the sense that she just... That that Theon is like a safe person for her to talk to about this, like in the crypts, because he's not going to tell and no one cares what he says. So you can you can just talk at him the way Roos also does when he has a conversation with Theon of Barrowton. And of course, this is when we see we see Wyman Manderley's little Titus Andronicus master plan unfold under the surface, which <laughs> is an element people really love about dance, is, is Wyman's revenge plot and serving up the phrase as pies to everyone in the Great Hall. And just the just how the, the wonderful just cold bloodthirst and glee of that, like when he's mentioning the, the Rat Cook song. And I just I love how that summarizes the whole that there's the horrible bloodshed and intense ruthlessness, but it's just under the surface, threatening to break through, but it's just under the surface. That's great stuff. 
And then last in terms of scenes, I think just for me, every scene with Big Walter Frey is a tie. He's, he's one of my favorite <laughs> background characters as I was covering in Brands, Chapters, and Clash of Kings. I love the idea of this tiny supervillain, worst of the Freys, who has the whole succession of the twins in his head and wants to move up at any cost, but no one really takes him seriously because he's a child and he's a, a, a tiny child at that. So it's like, you know, he's just, he's just hiding in plain sight. And I love that. I love the the kind of comedy routine of his reintroduction with little Walder, where they're going back and forth describing Theon. And Theon is like, wait, which ones were you? Which one is which again? I can't quite remember. Because that's the position the reader is in, because we haven't seen these kids for a long time either. So perfect way to reintro them. There's a wonderful bit at Barrowton when George tells us that little Walder, as, as Ramsay's squire, has become more and more like him every day and is more and more bloodthirsty and just sadistic and cruel, but that Big Walder was, quote, made of different stuff. And I think that's a really interesting distinction on George's part, that Big Walder is kind of the more serious and less less bloodthirsty villain. I mean, not to say that Big Walder is, you know, suddenly becoming a better person because he talks about, yeah, Wyman Manderley killed my relative. That's what I would have done if I was him. He's in some ways even more frightening, but I, I always like the, you know, the, the distaste villains like that have for villains like Ramsey. Same with Roos. Like, Roos obviously does awful things all the time, but he's like Ramsey. You just, you do this much too publicly. It's, it's grubby and tacky, the sort of things you do. Mm. And I love that Big Walder, like I was saying earlier, is clever enough to frame the Manderleys for him killing Little Walder. Because Little Walder is ahead of him in the succession. And early, early as Clash, Big Walder says, I'm going to be the Lord of the Twins, which is basically announcing, I'm going to kill you off, cousin. <laughs> and then he, he waits, he waits until he has the chance in Winterfell when he realizes there's all this tension building up between my relatives and the Manderleys. So I can get away with this. I can kill my cousin if I frame the Manderleys for it. And he does a great job because even though I think the on reread, the blood on him is kind of a giveaway, he knows that's not what anyone's going to be looking at. That's not what anyone's going to be thinking about. It's going to be Freys versus the Manderleys. So, uh, he, yeah, he's, he's one of my favorites, and I love his stuff and dance. Yeah, I, I still enjoy listening back to the episode we did where we covered Big Walter Frey and his master plan to become the Lord of the Crossing. And yeah, he's, he's, he's a great character in, in A Dance with Dragons. And there's that kind of like, it's kind of minor, but there's that fandom debate about whether whether Big Walter killed Little Walter because he was becoming more like Ramsey or because Little Big Walter was just trying to get ahead in the line of succession. I think maybe a little bit of both, but I do think the idea of jumping in the line of succession was probably more in Big Walter's mind when he made that move. And, and of course, the White Wedding is incredibly evocative in terms of its imagery it's beautiful like when you when you look at it and how the snow is falling and the candles over 100 candles are lit and yet it's a marriage between ramsey and and, and jane it's was the results of one of the most horrifying scenes in, in a song of ice and fire so it's that thing theme that george loves to play with which is that the beautiful things on the exterior sometimes hide darker uglier truths underneath and i think that's really brought out well from that scene and then yeah, Barbary, Barbie and the Crips is, is very interesting because I think we start to get, like I said earlier, a fuller picture of who the Starks were and some of the backstory to to Robert's Rebellion. That it wasn't simply just that the Northmen, the Rivermen, the Valemen, and the Stormlanders all rose up in righteous indignation against the, the terrors of Aerys Targaryen. That no, there was actually a political calculus that went into this act before Aerys Targaryen murdered Rickard and Brandon Stark and how that might have been spurred on by the maesters. Again, getting back into that mystery espionage angle that you were talking about so well, that is something that I'm interested in seeing more of, especially as we're going to see likely more stories and unfolding about the maesters in Samuel's story in The Winds of Winter. But I do think that Barbary's story in The Crypts does kind of open us up to um, to those to that idea that there's there's more that can be 
that can be learned about the Masters. And there's more going on in the backstory of A Song of Ice and Fire, which, you know, George has done an excellent job of definitely crafting a wonderful backstory for 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 the story. In terms of, of my favorite chapter, it, it's an easy one, and I'm sorry, but I mean, like, it's Theon. Come on, man. He gets his own name back for a chapter heading. I remember reading that for the first time and being like, really emotional at the start of that chapter and of course at the at the end of the chapter too but before we get to the to theon jumping i i do <laughs> i do love that dynamic of the manor lease and phrase there's been that simmering tension that's been kind of like building and building and building and building and finally it comes way out into the fore when you know big water brings little water's body in and hostine Frey immediately accuses the manor of murdering little water after of course big water has framed them and Hostine says, do you deny that you murdered my my brother's son? And Wyman says, I, I admit that I had nothing to do with it. And he's, he's like, what was his name again? How old was the boy? He says, nine. And Wyman says, so young, said Wyman mannerly. Though mayhaps this was a blessing. Had he lived, he would have grown up to be afraid. You had quoted that in the synopsis, which I thought you did an excellent job in. But I love that line from uh, from from Wyman Manerly in, in that chapter. And then uh, this this gets into hopefully what we'll cover at some point in the future about Theon's Winds of Winter chapter and his, his story beyond. But there is that scene as Theon and the Washwomen are kind of racing through Winterfell trying to get up to Jane that we see um, that Theon observes. The passages were clogged with troops, armored knights in woolen surcoats and fur cloaks, men at arms with spears across their shoulders, archers carrying unstrung bows and sheaves of arrows, free riders, grooms leading war horses. The fray men wore the badge of the two towers. Those from White Harbor displayed Merman and Trident. They shouldered through the storm in opposite directions and eyed each other warily as they passed, but no swords, but no swords were drawn. Not here. It may be different out there in the woods. So I think that is as excellent because that does work, I think, to foreshadow what is likely going to happen in the Winds of Winter for maybe not the story, but also could be observed by Asha Greyjoy too at or after the Battle of Ice. So that'll be something we'll cover hopefully here in the next few months. Now, that's a terrific choice for, for best chapter. That's the one where kind of all the, the seething undercurrents of, of loyalty and mystery and suffering that build up in those previous chapters. It's a very cathartic chapter because those finally reach the surface. The Manderlees and Fraser are finally saying what they think of each other. Someone's finally going out to fight and Theon can finally take his leap. It's yeah, it's so good. It's it's so great, and I mean, like, um, I miss all like the political, like the violence that's being meted out, and the escalating tension, and the foreshadowing of what's going to happen in the winds of winter. We also get those enormous emotional moments from Theon's final chapter, namely titled Theon, and we have the whole line where Theon thinks, "I should have died with him. Where was I?" And he's referring, of course, to Rob Stark and being at the Red Wedding. That's that's where he should have been. I don't necessarily believe that Theon is objectively correct in thinking that he just should have died with Robb Stark, but I do th- understand and think that he's emotionally correct in, in in his feelings. He's not wrong in believing and thinking that about himself, and it does resonate with readers because we are starting to see that Theon is kind of coming around and realizing what he did in A Clash of Kings as kind of caused what happened to Robb Stark at the Twins, in part, not in full. And his, his admission that he should have died with Robb Stark is him kind of identifying his own kind of his own part that he played in Rob Stark's downfall and also too speaking almost more to that kind of friendship that he has with Rob Stark again I'm not sure that the text necessarily displays the Anna Rob's friendship as well as George thinks that it does but at the same time 
I think that it works really well, especially in retrospect and Theon's memories of what happened at, at, at the twins and where his place should have been. And then finally for Theon's chapter, final chapter, we have that extraordinarily tense rescue scene. Like that is a super, super tense scene where they're trying to get Jane out and she's like not, they're trying to find her in the room itself. I just remember like being like, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen? What's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? And when they finally bundle her out and get her out of the um the room and she screams and suddenly everything bursts into chaos and they're running and the arrows are flying and the washerwomen are dying all around them and Theon is up there at the walls and he's realized I can't go back to Ramsay I can't I can't I can't and he grabs Jane and and he jumps so it, it, it's it's a perfect conclusion to, to Theon's arc the end of his story uh, the end of story in a dance with dragons rather and, and I do think that that that's my favorite chapter from from a dance with dragons is my favorite Theon chapter from a dance with dragons is Theon from A Dance of Dragons. Can't find anything better than that. Exactly. How appropriate. So what about some more uh, individual scenes that you love from these chapters? I, there, there's a lot that I love, uh, individual scenes from these chapters. But I, I think one that I love is uh, Bruce Bolton and, and, and Theon from Reek, Reek 3. Where Bruce Bolton is like, actually, you know what? All of the boy, all of Ramsey's boys, they're, they're my men after all. Oh, by the way, Ramsey poisoned my son and killed him. Oh, and none of my sons from Walda are going to survive because Ramsey will murder them all. Well, such is life, isn't it, up here in the north? And, you, you know, this is just a – it's so interesting because Ruth <laughs> – Roos is like a freaking alien in this, mm-hmm. in this chapter, right? Uh, Barbie later says that there's no there's no humanity left in Roos Bone. There's no warmth or, or person that he is inside. And, you know, Theon thinks in Reek 2 that there is more cruelty in Roos Bolton's little finger than there is in any of the phrase combined. And we really see that come out in, in force in, in Reek 3. So I just think that's, that's it's, it's not a wonderful moment in the story, but it really illustrates more of who Bruce Bolton was. And I think it retrospectively provides his reasons for why he betrayed Rob Stark. It wasn't this emotional need that he had to fulfill to kind of get ahead in the Game of Thrones or because the Starks had wronged them or there was an historical agreement between the Boltons and the Starks, which of course does exist. But rather that Bruce is like, well, this is what I should do because I'm going to do that and I don't have the humanity to do otherwise than that. Second scene for me is it really needs no explanation, but it's from a ghost in Winterfell where the war horn sounds outside of Winterfell and then Theon observes no sooner had the sound of the war horn died away than a drum began to beat boom, doom, boom, doom, boom, doom. And a name passed from the lips of each man to the next written in small white puffs of breath. Stannis, they whispered. Stannis is here. Stannis has come. Stannis. Stannis, Stannis, it's amazing and wonderful. Even if it's not Stannis Baratheon, that's that's more as Crowfoot Umber as you were saying. That him, the the entire thought of Stannis Baratheon being outside of the walls sends all of these people into terror. That it's almost like justice is finally coming for all of these people within the walls of Winterfell, and they're all like cockroaches trying to run away from the light. Well, the Lord of Light that is about to show up out there and uh, potentially burn many, many of them. Final scene, and, and I talked about this ex- extensively when I talked about Theon's final chapter, but the Theon jump scene at the end of the, the eponymous Theon chapter from, from A Dance with Dragons is, is just, again, I, I, I've kind of killed this topic to death at this point, but it is just a, a, a an amazing moment in the story and one that I always come back to that I always, it always takes me emotionally like right, like at the, at the bottom of my throat is where I, where I feel that when, when Theon jumps, it, it, it culminates his entire story. It makes his story really... 
I, it's, I, I think that Jon Snow's story is the best single character arc in A Dance with Dragons. But Theon's story just has the most emotionally cathartic moments in, in the story. And I think that one there is the uh, the iceberg, or rather the tip of the, the cherry on top of a number of, of amazing the emotional moments in, in the story. And then and a number of amazing emotional plot moments in, in Theon's story and in A Dance with Dragons. So Theon jumped. I love that scene with Roos talking to Theon that you were talking about because, like, it's technically Roos explaining himself, but I think he makes even less sense after it's over <laughs> than he did before because he's 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 laying out what ought to be, you know, very central kind of the the big moments of his life and the the big moments that have brought him to where he is, but he's doing it in such a, like a casual off-handed manner it talks it, it comes off like he's describing somebody else's life or just stuff that happened to as theon thinks that other man and yeah as barbary says there's just a, a just a, a lack of emotion and he has none of the he has none of the identity struggles that play all these other characters like Roos, mm. horribly enough knows exactly who he is and exactly what he wants and that actually comes off as alien because no one really works like that. Human <laughs> beings are actually like, you know, we're always just kind of jumping from one goal to the next and we're not sure of our own motives and we're always just trying to find who we are. And Roos is like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm the guy who did the Red Wedding. That's who I am. <laughs> In the same way that like Kyburn is like just so creepily satisfied with himself always. And just like Kyburn has no mm. compunctions, no curiosity about himself. Like I'm, I'm the guy who does vivisections. I'm that guy. And I have my uses and I have patrons who will support me. So I'm perfectly fine. And I, I think it's, I think it's a, a wonderful, like cynical touch, but also realistic that the, the villains just don't suffer that agony or some of the villains just don't suffer that same kind of agony because there's, there's a clarity that comes with abandoning all moral compunction because then you, you don't have to worry about anything anymore. And I think you, you see that come through with Roos, that there's, even though he's he's the center of things technically in terms of the political drama in the North, there's just this void within him where he doesn't really care. And that's the, that's a, such an interesting contrast. I love that. And yes, obviously, yeah, that, that, that beat with Stannis is so, so wonderfully tense and just so vivid and gets at something George does so well, where I, I love the scenes he writes with Stannis, but some of his most effective writing of Stannis comes when he's not even there. And he's just, yeah. he's just being described in terms of his reputation and just the, the kind of the dread that, that he induces in other people and how the, the great ambiguity of that. Because uh, on the one hand, it's like, you know, I don't, most, most of the, the people whispering his name, the soldiers, like they're not the ones who planned the Red Wedding. I don't, you know, I don't mm -hmm. hate those guys, but it's still, it does make you eager for like, yes, yeah, show up, wreck, wreck hell on these guys, wreck havoc, ch <laughs> change this incredibly tense situation. And I think you definitely feel yourself brought to the edge of your seat there. It's great stuff. Mm, it is really great stuff, and I, I always remember we we had done this for a, a, a one of our live casts. But there was somebody asking about Roose Bolton, and it always just makes me laugh. And it made me laugh that back there a second ago um, when you were talking about how Roose is describing that he like is oddly fond of of his of his wife Walter, yeah. which is what he tells like Theon. And I always I just remember you thinking like the giant vampire man is like oh oh. Wow, sex is actually pretty awesome. Who knew? With my, with my, who knew? With, with my wife, like this alien for the first time, it's like this is so interesting. It, it's great. So I, I think it's a uh, Bone is, is a character I don't think is long for for the series. Um, 
post probably he's probably dead by the end of a dance of dragons for being honest but uh his scenes in a, in a dance of dragons are, are definitely wonderful but i think that's going to wrap us up for this analysis of theon in a dance with dragons i hope all of you have liked this merry christmas happy hanukkah and happy holidays to all of you folks who are listening to this episode hope you've had a wonderful holiday time if you have the chance please rate and view us on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud podbean spotify anywhere and everywhere you find our podcasts you can find us at NotACastASOIAF on Twitter or shoot us an email at NotACastASOIAF at gmail.com. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter. And if you're listening to this as part of the general release, again, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash NotACastASOIAF. We've got so many great benefits for every tier. Early access, multiple bonus episodes every month, shout-outs, access to the Slack merch. And as Jeff was saying earlier, we got our our overall patron goals we're building towards to be able to follow up on this episode and bring you a series of episodes on Theon's chapter in The Winds of Winter. So if you're not one of our patrons, go ahead and check that out. And if you are, maybe mention it to some people you know, people you might think like the podcast, so we can get ourselves to that goal and keep bringing you these awesome episodes. Yeah, we would love to do Theon in The Winds of Winter, and that's going to be all on you guys to help us out. We're, We're excited to see where this goes. So if you like what you heard here, think about joining us at patreon.com forward slash notacast ASOAF. So again, thank you so much for listening. Thank you again to all of our patrons for supporting us. And we'll see you next week for our regular weekly, week-by-week episode, if you're listening after the holidays, and next month for our next Patreon monthly bonus episode.